now, ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you to Paris's prestigious La Villette Center for Science and Industry and present our host for this international television event, Mr. Telly Savalas. Welcome to Paris and to the adventure of a lifetime. On a bitterly cold night in 1912, the Royal Mail steamer RMS Titanic, the greatest ocean liner of the day, struck an iceberg on her maiden voyage to New York and plunged two and a half miles to the bottom of the Atlantic. Of the 2,207 people aboard, 1,502 lost their lives the worst maritime disaster in peacetime history. It was the end of an era and the beginning of a legend. Of the 705 survivors, some in the few lifeboats, some clinging to wreckage, most watched in horror as the enormous ship, lights ablaze virtually to the end, plunged to the bottom. When the Titanic disappeared on that cold April night, no one dared to dream any trace of her would be seen again. Yet... You are passengers in tonight's voyage and will return to the Titanic. Tonight, we will show you for the first time artifacts which have been lost to the world for more than 75 years. We will reveal new evidence which could explain why the Titanic went down. And we will open the recovered safe and valise and discover what surprises they contain. So, stay with us. the elephant we have locked up all right another late night we always Oof. we always find ourselves it always seems like a great idea at the time where we start out we're like we, we reinvented the show we should have made it like weekday afternoons yeah you know we should have thought this thing through we should have done like we after school <laughs> after school cartoon hour yeah <laughs> Instead of Saturday Night Movie yeah, Sleepover. Weekly after show cartoon hour. <laughs> and we talk about G.I. Joe. We talk about... See, we're giving some... There's a podcast right there. You know, maybe that's a, maybe that's something for us to do. We'll do the a, future sidecast. A future sidecast. Is a the future presents. Yeah, it's the afternoon um, afternoon school, cartoon the hour. after school special. After school. Oh, you love after school specials. <laughs> this is getting down in the alley. You have... There was... What is it? The HBOs? Oh, those HBO ones. Yeah. Yeah. But even if you... There are some great ones, though, from even if you... Like ABC. And like, yeah. You know, like, but even ones. from like the 70s and the early 80s yeah. and stuff. There's one I remember that was an after school special that was... Uh, I think it was ABC... And it was about a haunted house, and it was a very young Christian Slater, and he's like, I don't know, eight or ten in it, and they move into a house, and the house is haunted, but then at the end of the episode, you find out it's like the old man that buried money there years ago, and he's just trying to scare the kids to be able to get at them. I forget what it is, and I've looked to see, it was much like Disney's Mr. Boogity that I, yeah, yeah. it's one of those movies I saw back then, and then I went, I was able to find the Sunday night Disney movie, Mr. Boogity, and the Bride of Mr. Boogity, the sequel, on like, maybe, um, what's the name of that show? Um, uh, I offer, but I wasn't able to find any versions of this out there. The uh, Christian Slater thing. I've yeah, only found yeah. stills, like real shitty stills. You know, yeah, yeah. nothing. Everything's like three hundred, you know, mega pegs or whatever you. Call it. <laughs> 
Mega pegs. Mega pegs. So. Mega man. But I remember that being that was like a Saturday. A lot of these things you forget that they're they're not like like your after school specials were dealt with like drugs and that, yeah. there's that genre. But then there was just the genre of this this the after school special was just a, a special that was yeah. like Encyclopedia Brown or well, yeah. Well, there's also like crazy ones like my son went punk. It's about like this kid. <laughs> You know, teenage. I, like, I didn't see it, but I remember at some point, it's kind of like research for us, things for us to potentially do or uh, to do a special on or just to post weird things on Facebook. I'm looking up like after school, we, like weird after school specials. And there's just some really like bizarre topics out there that are ripe for us to like <laughs> dive into at some point. And you just got to think, I guess at some point they're going to just run out of ideas. So they're really just scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean, I remember yeah. one where it's like the. It was a, a world where like the, the kids were in charge and the parents were were children and the the kids were the adults. Not like a Bugsy Malone thing, but there was yeah, just like yeah. adults in it that were young, or it was something. So that I remember that I watched that on a Saturday. I remember and I got a great idea and I guess I must have been like ten. So I went and found my dad and he was like in the basement like vacuuming. Like dad, I just watched a special where you know the kids are uh, adults and the adults are kids. You think we can do that one day here? He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Yes, to death. Yeah. And, that never enough. happened. Yeah, enough, <laughs> enough of that. You know, it's like the treehouse he told me he was going to build. And I don't mean to slag my father off, but every year he's like, "Yeah, I'll do. I'll make you a treehouse in a couple of months." I'm busy right now. You know, I never got a treehouse, but you know, I mean, the guy was a, you know, he was a, he was busy. Yeah, he's, he's trying working. To, yeah, he's working. Trying to support. Yeah, he's working sixty hours a week, whatever the hell it is. But it's yeah, the after school specials genre. I remember one from like the early '90s on like a Saturday, where it was like this guy went back in time, this African American kid. And he was like back in the slave time, and it was kind of like it's a wonderful life kind of a concept where he was like an asshole, but yeah. then he went back to like in, like you don't know how good you got a yeah, kid. Yeah, but it was real. But it's ta- it was dealing with like you know like prejudice and And then he was it was funny like he, he had like a Mercedes Benz. He's like, yo, where'd I park my Benz? And then it's like he's you know, he's he's like in his like kid and play outfit. Mm-hmm. And then it's like he's running around with slaves and stuff. And it's you know I didn't watch the whole thing, but it was just. <laughs> I didn't really. I didn't watch the whole thing. I was just, I, I, got really little, I got a little bored. It's just like I was like, but it's so crazy the ideas they you know they come out with you know that to fill that genre. Well, anyway, but, but anyway. we didn't decide to do after. We didn't decide that the show would be about afternoons. No. Instead, we decided <laughs> to go the hard route. Yeah. And go late night Saturday night movie sleepovers. Yeah. So here we are. It's late on a Saturday night. We're back. Yeah. Keeping we, it up. We're getting too old for this shit. <laughs> We got to stop drinking a case of beer. At, like, we start drinking at like six o'clock. There's a lot of pre-pro in this show, and we're not even talking about research. <laughs> what we do is we have a big dinner. No. Sometimes we're busy because we both work. We work oh, weekends to catch up. You're a freelancer. I do over oh, overtime. So sometimes we'll get to the house. We won't even have dinner. And you know what happens when you drink on an empty stomach? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, there's a couple. There's been a couple episodes that we had to abort because I got too sick and Blake had to hold my hair. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm throwing up in the. Yeah, we didn't. Th- we the first one we thought it would be kind of funny to put it to to post it, but yeah, uh, we decided against it. Yeah. And then also, you know, like you said, sometimes like we do the we do a late night Saturday, and then one of us or both of us have to go into an, some office the next day and work to try to catch up on stuff or get some overtime. So we do a late night sleepover. Then yeah, I get up and go to work. Yeah, you're exhausted right next day because you only had like two hours of sleep, and we're like, it means something. We're saying that to people who don't even understand what's happening now. <laughs> you know, our wives or our friends are like, this is serious. We have we have obligations to keep. So uh, it can get taxing, but it's fun, though. I mean, this is how it all came out of um, 
the history you and I have together of uh, of us doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we'd have these sleepovers, and we'd be up till freaking 5 or 6 in the morning, like, acting like fools. We got on a run where we would watch, like, whatever the latest DC or Marvel animated movie was. Yeah. Like, the (laughs) straight-to-video. Whatever the recent one was, because DC was doing a straight... They still are doing them, but there was a good run. And they were great. Where we would get together and watch those. It was giving us a reason to get together. Hey, come on over. We'll watch... uh, Yeah, watch Doctor Strange or the the X-Men one. And then the uh, best one still was that like Justice League New Frontiers, the original one, yeah. From the one of the first, yeah, with the, at the beginning, they're like back in the time, and there's dinosaurs, and there's like the, the well, it was like it was the story was uh, Green Lantern, was maybe? the Green Lantern one, yeah. And the guy gets like the, ring. Sh- the Nazi or whatever gets shot, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, yeah, there's some great because that was the thing with Marvel, which did some great ones, but then DC, we were finding out while we were what they were much more like, yeah, yeah, in it. For all, they were killing people in it, and they were just real, it's real adult material. The DC ones were good because we watched like the Judge, the Judgment Day, the Superman. Oh, you talking about uh, the Doomsday? The Doomsday yeah. with Doomsday from the, the like from the, the comic Superman. Yeah, one. yeah, we watched that one. We watched the uh, it was an early one for us. We watched Doctor Strange. I feel like we watched a Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the Wolverine Hulk thing. We yeah, watched. and then we watched the one with. Uh, I want to say it was the Avengers. It was the first Avengers one. Yeah. Where the guy from, um, he's a voice actor who was in Short Circuit. He played the um, the Indian guy in Short Circuit, the scientist. Oh, yeah, he yeah. He did the voice of like Bruce Banner in that in that episode. And there was a lot right. of famous people in that one. Uh, I don't remember his name, though. Yeah, his name will come back. But he, he does a lot of voice work nowadays. And he was in, he played the, he played Bruce Banner. Or, I mean, was it David Banner? I don't know which what, what there. Bruce in the... The, it was only David in the TV show. In the, t- the, in the old TV show with the old Bix. <laughs> the Bix was David because the, the the urban legend of that goes that Bruce, which we cover in the tr- trial of the trial Incredible Hulk episode podcast that we did, which we love, it's personal it family. But you said the word on the word on the street was that they because Bruce Banner is you know the Hulk, but. Someone at the network thought that Bruce was too gay, <laughs> sounded too gay of a name. So they changed it to David. So they changed it to David Bruce Banner because he looks at his beginning of the episodes. You see him at his own grave site. It says David Bruce Banner. Oh, and they made that the middle. Yeah, yeah. The Bruce. To keep it some kind of continuity. They had some weird justifications. We were just talking Cagney Lacey with Martin Cove's interview last week, and they canceled that for the first season because they thought Meg Foster and Ty Daly were, were too much like lesbians. And they're like, we want them to be heterosexual. They're coming off like lesbos. <laughs> we got to guess they canceled the show. We can't have this shit. Cancel yeah, it. Yeah, we can't have this gay shit. And it's like, no, can man. Can we just give one of them a boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, yeah just, that's all he had. Yeah, well, Ty was married in it. She was married to the guy I love, uh, Harv. I forget the, the actor's name who was on um, uh, Dark Shadows. But it, yeah, I don't know why. So then they recast it with uh, Sharon Gilles, and then it, the rest is history. But it's... You think of the? I'm sure there's a book to be written out there if it's not yeah, already yeah. done of the craziest time. You know, we got boardrooms shows. Sister to uh, to, to, to Tim uh, Tim Daly. Tim Daly and who played Superman? Who played Superman in the stuff? It we all watched. comes around. And there's a Dark Shadows connection to the movie we're doing tonight. Yeah, and the <laughs> uh, the their father t- da, the Tim dad. And, their dad Tim and Ty Daly's, and there's a third I think uh, sister maybe. Their father is the actor. I don't remember his name, but his last name is Daly. And he is in a lot of the Twilight Zones. And he, most famously for me, is in the episode Last Next Stop Willoughby. Mm-hmm. 
he's that act, the guy who keeps falling asleep on the train uh, in New Haven, uh, uh, traveling back on the city, and then he's wait, he's going into this land where it's like turn of the century Willoughby, and he ended up dying at a heart attack uh, in Terrytown, New York. He was getting ready to do a, uh, a play at Terrytown Music Hall, and he died in like 1980, you know? But it's like, oh, I know that guy from, you know, seeing him in Twilight Zones growing up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever the, 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 the actor's name is. But So yes, there's some connections to this tonight. This movie tonight is is a near and dear one to me and it started this huge morbid weird fascination with me about the titanic and yes this was uh dion's fascination with the titanic and you've known about this since you've met me right since the minute we've met because <laughs> I, I tried to bring the scale model from this movie into our dorm room and the and blake was so lovely but the first night like I can't use this as a coffee table, you know, and it's it's twenty feet high, and it's it's just like, you, you, where do you want to put no, that? So I mean, I'm sure we have talked about it because I, I I have you know, uh, you know, you're always very uh, nice to point out. Oh, we you know, Blake's an expert on John Carpenter, or Blake we have a resident hockey expert. So tonight we have a resident Titanic <laughs> aficionado slash. Uh, uh, expert, um, and I know we've probably talked about it in the past because I have a story where my eighth grade science teacher was obsessed with the Titanic. Okay, and so we did. I wonder if her last name was like Masterson, like Miss Masterson, but I could be completely wrong. But she, you know, there was like a week, at least a week, maybe two weeks, where she went like completely off book, and every you know class, every year, she would do her own Titanic, like part of for the class it had nothing to do it wasn't on anything and did it keep the kids um attention or were they kind of like yeah no i think we were all kind of into it you know it was it was interesting i mean this was we'd watch like the ballard documentaries and you know learn all about it and i think we watched uh night to remember and um but she was fascinated with it so you know it's something that because of my eighth grade class i've always kind of known a little bit about yeah but then so you know, meaning you having a bit of a, you have a fascination with it. And I know we've probably talked about it, but we've been friends for 20 years now. So a lot of the conversations we've had get lost. <laughs> yeah, we don't have as much of, of memory to be so able to So this is my question to you. We're doing this, just a movie that's near and dear to your heart. You and have- we're doing it today because this uh, marks within a day the 105th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. Uh, and that's kind of the reason why we're doing it this Friday because we figured, oh, you know, it's the 105th anniversary because, you know, people are counting. <laughs> so <laughs> we figured we'd, uh, you know, we'd, uh, we'd talk about the darn thing. But I'm very curious to know, like, when did this, when did this uh, kind of interest in the Titanic start? When did, was it this movie that got you to, like, when did you see this movie? When did it all start? And what is it about that, that fascinates you? Go. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. Next question. Uh, I think it started in 1985. Ballard found the Titanic. And it started for me right then. So it was like five or six years old at that time. And uh, it was huge in the press for like, I forget how long. I don't remember offhand if it was just a surprise, like the next day it was on the cover of every newspaper in the world, or if there was a buildup. They're going to yeah. find They're going to find They found it. But I remember closely at the time my father worked in New York City and commute every day to work so he was bringing home New York posts every day yeah so I was he was cutting me out the articles and I was watching and then because of the renewed interest on TV was raised the Titanic and night to remember 
Yeah, and they yeah. were just, and then I think they were even throwing time bandits in because there's a part in time bandits where they go on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. So those were in complete circulation. So yeah. I watched the shit out of the original uh, Sir Walter Lord's adaptation of Night to Remember, the black and white movie from the sure. 50s, and then this movie from 1980, Raised the Titanic. Yeah. So for people that don't know, uh, the Titanic sunk in. 1912. 12. And then it was just lost. Yeah, it was lost for... Until... Until 1985. This, like, you know, marine explorer, Robert Ballard. Yeah, went to go... And this is is the fun thing about this podcast. For me, I feel like this is going to be our our conspiracy theory slash uh, alternate facts, as people like to say (laughs) nowadays, uh, uh, edition of the podcast, because... I kind of feel like I want to tell people what they don't know, what they couldn't have known, and what they didn't want people to know for this when we talk about the Titanic. Because we're going to take a leap here, and we shouldn't for, to get bogged down because you know how we can easily get bogged down when yeah, I talk yeah. too much. People, we're going to take the, the idea that people know the story, the relative story. Yeah, yeah. That they've seen the movie. You saw the movie. You saw the James <laughs> Yeah, you know, so we don't need to get into it. You're right. It, 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 it was a ship that hit an iceberg in 1912 and sank in about two hours, and then it was and the, lost. And it was, you know, the importance of it is that it was like the biggest ship yeah, ever, it was the biggest and that ship. it was unsinkable. Yeah, they they they. Which is like you know you, you shouldn't know. fuck with. <laughs> There's some things in this <laughs> world. That's not jinx thing. Yeah. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Right out, right out the gate. <laughs> Who the hell called it that? Yeah, we're, okay. we're gonna start. Well, yeah. Ooh, how did this start getting the press and people started? But so, and it was a horrible tragedy. Yeah, I mean, you lost. They like, didn't, there weren't enough lifeboats. Lifeboats went out without even being full. Nobody thought it was gonna sink. The shit sank. It was horrible. Yeah, it was in it was in like thirty one or thirty degree water. So uh, everybody in the the uh, the survivors who were in the lifeboats said that after the ship went down, the 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 noise that stuck with them for the rest of their lives was the sound of the people in the water. And it said that he said they can only equate it to if you're ever at a baseball game and someone hits a home run. And they yeah, said yeah. that's how loud it was of people. And then with an hour or two. People drowned, people froze to death, people succumbed to their injuries. And then by the time the Carpathia got there, which was a couple hours later, there was really nobody left in the water. And then it was only the people who were still in the lifeboats. But like you said, there was only lifeboats. Except for Rose. Except for Rose. She she survived because Jack... She said she'd never let Jack go, and then as soon as he froze, even she though let there him was go. enough room on that piece of wood <laughs> yeah, for the two of them, yeah, she. I don't know why she couldn't just move her ass over and get him up there, but maybe it was something to do with he was holding her. I don't know. He was studying, yeah, he was you know. But um, so you know, they only had enough lifeboats for half, just under half the people on board because they never thought that this would need to be happened. And then uh, there was a lot of issues with the classes of people, first, yeah, second, yeah, and third yeah. class. So, uh, but it was a different time back then too. There's, there's these. Amazing stories about the Strausses, who the uh, very famous people who the guy refused the wife. It was women and children getting off, and they, you know, she, it was her time to get on the boat, and he didn't want to. She didn't want to leave him, and then he yeah. said, uh, "Then they said, well, I'm sure you can go too." And he's like, "No, it's women and children. I'm going to stay." So she stayed with him. They both perished. You had a lot of people. Yeah. Back then, it well, was the the band played. Yeah. Tried to keep everybody calm. The last. The yeah, they played uh, "Near My God to Thee." Uh, which was a very famous song that was like the last song being heard on the ship. It, yeah, it, you know, when everybody re- realized and resigned to their fates, which is a very scary thing, uh, a lot of the guys until the very end acted like gentlemen. Except they, for Billy Zane. Except for Billy Zane and David Warner, his manservant. <laughs> but for you know? the most part, everybody. And what happened supposedly on the ship in this movie, in the, in the, in the, in the book. But so for 
how many years, 80 or so years, I don't know, the ship was one of those white whales for people. It was like the biggest wreck. People who were in the, uh, you know, undersea, deep water, people had found like the Lusitania. I think they found the, the, maybe the Bismarck until recently. But, you know, there was always, they were always looking for that big wreck and the Titanic was always the, like the fantasy. One day we'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, to start this off, everyone knows that Robert Ballard found the Titanic, but what people, I think it's starting to become common knowledge now, but it was only released recently, is that it was declassified actually why um, Robert Ballard was actually going out to find the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. And the but reason- my only point was, before we get into why he was doing it, yeah. I just wanted to kind of put it in perspective for people that don't know. So, you know... He found it in 1985. This yeah, guy, he was, he this, went out he was a huge like and Indiana the, Jones my, of the. My, my point was only like it was a big fucking deal. <laughs> yeah, and then not only did he find it, he had uh, uh, like this these little robotic submersibles at the just initially go down and take pictures. So not only did he find it, there are photos on the front page of every newspaper in the world of the bow of the Titanic of color photos of the uh you know some of the light fixtures still yeah, in yeah. place some of the uh you know the the nice uh, glass panes everything's yeah, still yeah. there so, so yeah so just to put in perspective like it this was thing huge. was lost they didn't know if they were ever gonna find it. no and then and then this guy goes out and finds it so it was a big and this and that's five years after this movie comes out yeah so uh my point is just that like i think it's easy for us to now take it for granted that like okay, like James Cameron's been down there a million times. Yeah, he's been <laughs> you doing know, shit. Like, you know, like I think it's easy for us to now take it for granted that we know where it is. You go down at some point, you'll be able to take a vacation. We yeah, you go a, down and look you know, at whatever's left of it now. Yeah, you know, ten years from now, you know, we'll be they're already we'll, selling. Be do, we'll be doing a Saturday night movie sleepover <laughs> from the Titanic. <laughs> the, but, like, but yeah, I mean, if you have like a million dollars, they'll take you down now. There's, there's yeah, so, you can go down. I think like, um, but at the time. No, no this one, was the new frontier. Yeah, and, and you know, and then he also broke news when he found it that the ship had broken too. Yeah, you know, no one even considered that. Why would the ship break in two? Because for now the most part, you know, but that's were there not report like eyewitness reports that it broke? Yeah, there were, two, but people but nobody just, believed it. They just didn't understand it because some people said it almost righted itself and went back horizontal, or some people said they remember hearing this huge sound. And a lot of people over the years, which I think they cover in the book. Uh, and then the movie is that they thought the it was just the boilers uh, that are in the bottom of the ship. There's like I think there was like uh, 26 or something boilers that they were just becoming dislodged when the thing was in the air and they were just sliding out and then you know coming out of the hull and that was the noise they thought they were hearing. Yeah. Or yeah. the explosions of the cold water hitting those boilers because they found like almost I don't know how many boilers they found with explosions because when the cold water hit that hot it cause a massive explosion when the water yeah. flooded in. So there was really no indication no, I that mean, it had they, broken in two. I think it was one of those things when they discovered it, they went back to like transcripts after where Because even happened. then they could have blamed it on... I mean, I could see somebody making the conclusion. Like, it, it's, in, it's in two pieces, but that could have happened... Oh, when it was under. When it hit... What it hit no, they, ground. What they did was they they've done like every year, believe it or not. There's there's huge huge like fans of this, and there there's always new data coming out. And it's one of these things. I'm surprised that there's societies. They're doing sci. There's scientists. There's people actually like, still, 105 yeah. years later, they're still releasing new stuff and and coming up with new conclusions to just try to figure out exactly to the T what happened that night. And one of the things they came up with was that at the time, the steel that they were making was too brittle. There was too much sulfur in the steel. So nowadays with our steel, when the steel 
you know, when you can, a steel can bend at great yeah. things. This steel was so brittle that under certain forces it would snap. So that's the reason why when she was up in the air that it, the front end couldn't keep the back end's weight. Yeah. And that's the reason why it ended up snapping. And then, you know, it the first part broke off. It almost righted. They thought it was going to be, oh, some people thought, oh, maybe this is going to be detachable and stay afloat. I mean, it was literally the worst set of disasters you can ever... Yeah. It was like I mean, there's no that you know they they realize the perfect now perfect worst chain of events. Yeah, it's like a, everything just went wrong. Like it couldn't have you couldn't have written it. Like if you were to write, yeah, like this would go wrong and then that would go wrong and then that one. Like you wouldn't even be able to come up with like how perfectly it went disastrous. Yeah, and uh, so this came out in '85. Ballard was a huge, huge explorer at the time. Uh, known in his circles, but this brought him international fame because he's suddenly the guy who's found the Titanic, almost like, um, what's his face? Uh, the other, who's the French maritimer, you know, that, that goes down. Uh, Clouseau, not Jacques Clouseau. Uh, uh, Cousteau? Cousteau, I'm saying. Yeah. Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> you know, Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> Hello, commissioner. I was the commissioner. Uh, you know, up to that, he got him into that status. So people yeah, yeah. were everything Titanic at the time, and then like... Um, there was a very famous, which I should have brought with me today. I have the the National Geographic came out with the very famous next issue of the Titanic. All these beautiful photos yeah, that yeah. sold had like hotcakes and like things, flaps you can fold out. And sure, sure. Diagrams of what happened and what they believe now. But because you know, because he doesn't find it to eighty five. When you know, when this book uh, Raise is, the Titanic, is written, yeah. the book that this movie, the we're talking about, Raise the Titanic. Raised the Titanic from 1980, based on a novel by Clive Clusler. Clusler, uh, when he writes this book, you know it's a mystery. Yeah, no one knows. You know, like it's it's that great mystery. Something happens to the Titanic, and so it's like in the 70s uh, when he writes this book, it's you know it's kind of like the perfect vehicle for this story because it's there's it and and, and it becomes a hit novel because it captures the imagination yeah. of that like that great mystery uh you know setting this kind of story not on the backdrop because it's not during the sinking of the titanic but like having the titanic be a part like having history play a part in this kind of uh cool adventure it's like espionage type yeah it's like a, like a kind of a historical fiction so i just trying to you know trying to set the table for viewers that put in some kind of context yeah. uh clive uh clusler for me is someone who i absolutely adore and i discovered him because of the book that i found out and i remember when you and i went to made our california trip when we were in glendale we that we found these two awesome bookstores and they had a UK edition of the Raise the Titanic they had like a Clive Cluster section yeah yeah so I grabbed that up and then I think I read it when I got back again maybe or was it the first time in 2000 whenever that was 14 or 15 we went or maybe 13 I don't know yeah, what it was now 13. but I own about he has like over 70 books in print I own about 10 of them and the brilliant thing I, I what I like to do is I like to read Clive Cluster books when I go on vacation because to me over any author that you can think of if you go anywhere in the world I've found, like airports, CVSs, any place that sells a book, that you're, there's a 90% chance there's going to be a Clive Cluster novel, like a new novel he's come out with in yeah, paperback yeah. that's there. And that used to be the joke. I'd go on vacation, I'd walk into an airport lounge or one of those stores, and I'd see a Clive Cluster book. I'm like, this is what I'm going to read, you know, because he's just so prophetic. He's now probably... In his, I think he's like his mid 80s or something like that. Yeah. But that was his his angle of of 
when he first started writing, he had an advertising background. And uh, his wife got a job like working second shift as like a, a, a police woman, like in a police station. So he was taking care of the kids. So he put the kids to bed at night and he had nothing to do. And, he, and so he's like, oh, what am I, you know, so he said, you know what I'm going to do? He's like, why don't I start writing to just fill my time? Because I've got no one to talk to, nothing to watch or whatever. So and then he said, well, that's interesting. Well, why don't I start writing like uh, I'll do like a continue, like, do a character yeah. and then come out with a series and like, you know, do a reoccurring series. So because of his advertising background, he went and he started studying all the kind of characters that have like uh, episodic adventures like yeah. Sherlock Holmes and all these kind of people. Or and as we discovered, we didn't even know until we did Remo Williams. That Re- Remo Williams was kind of a serialized. Yeah, and he's got a huge category of stuff too. Remo, yeah. we didn't realize. And he went back and he looked at all this stuff and he looked at what made them work, what made them popular. And then what he tried to do actively, he didn't want it to be a James Bond. He didn't want it to be kind of like, a, uh, you know, the, the, he didn't want to compete with those other authors out there. So his angle was, I'm going to do adventure type stories and the hero would be doing something that involves the ocean because he had a huge passion for the ocean and, you know, deep sea stuff. So he wrote three books and then one of them came out. He, he published a second one, Iceberg, which I absolutely love. And then this was the fourth book written, but the third book published, Raise the Titanic. Okay, yeah. And then he's the Dirk Pitt. Dirk Pitt, yeah, he's the he's the, the adventurer. And now he's come out with he has a whole series of there's a four or five different ones he does. Um, uh, Isaac Bell, which are guy, it takes place like in the turn of the twenty, the nineteenth to the twentieth century. He's got Dirk Pitt. He's got the Oregon Files. He may have a third, and he had this fictionous um, uh, government agency called uh, Numa N U M A, uh, and that stands for the uh, National Underwater and Marine Agency. And that was the, the the backdrop of what Dirk Pitt worked for. And then what ends up happening is he ends up creating that himself when he gets all this money from these novels. And he goes on to find like 60 wrecks himself, yeah. including the Carpathia, which is the ship that came to the Titanic's aid in real life and then went down during the war and a whole bunch of other ones. Yeah. So yeah. this guy is a bona fide, like he, like he does. His passion. Yeah, this is what he's doing. Like, you know, so that's like a little Clive cluster. So he writes this in, 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 in the, the middle 70s it sells like hotcakes and he said he didn't think it was going to sell better than anything else it's just his idea was that like i would love to be able to take you know have a story so he tried to think of a vehicle to have a a story to take place involved the titanic and this was the first novel where he ended up doing and all his subsequential novels where he has the first chapter take place in period of whatever's happening. So his stories always start off with this amazing thing where it's like the MacGuffin. They set up like in this story, it's the guy, the ship sinking. The guy comes up to a purser, puts a gun on and says, take me below to the vault. You get down there, the guy's like, the ship's sinking. He's like, I don't care. And then the guy runs out, the, the purser, he leaves the guy down there and the ship's taking water and that's the end of the first chapter. So always this great hook yeah, yeah. to get you, you know, and that's why these books are so popular because they just... They just roll. They just take off and go. And this was the first book to do that. So uh, Ballard comes out in 85 and finds this thing. And then everybody, you have like all these specials. Aini does the big, um, the the Titanic thing. They have a big documentary with Martin Sheen uh, narrating. And it was it was in the the zeitgeist for us. Like Martin, even with Martin Short. With Martin Short. <laughs> yeah, Martin Short's doing as grimly, I must say. <laughs> you know? Uh, I even remember in the late 80s, I taped something off the TV, which I'd love to find now because uh, it's been since taped over. It was a live show in London t- hosted by Telly Savalas where they 
taken up a safe yeah. and they were going to open it live on the air. The Titanic, baby. <laughs> it was great. He's like, <laughs> now we're going to look at, you know, and it was, it was, it was like, if I remember correctly, it was like a real futuristic looking studio and he, you know, he stand, they had like second la- levels he's standing on and then at the end of the episode, it's like two hours of BS explaining to people what the Titanic was and stories and accounts to like the last 20 minutes is we're going to open it up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> And then they start opening this thing, and it was much like uh, Geraldo's Al Capone's vault. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it in real time. It's like, ah, oh, this is covered in muck. Next, you know, this is covered in muck. You know, I don't, I don't even know what actually came out of it. Yeah. But yeah like, yeah. hey, look, it's some paper that you can't read, and it's some muck. You know, I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. So um, that that was like, but it was so exciting that like this was like a live telecast from London. Yeah. And they all I think like London did a lot of that kind of stuff uh, at the time. I felt like you and I watched a documentary oh the ripper about, one. about ripper that seemed like that was probably a live oh you're right that was kind of almost show live. that we would just happen to be watching a vhs of it and i think they did one about uh, like i feel like there's also one about the that haunted house in london that conjuring 2 was based on oh those people yeah yeah yeah. there's so, one about that like ghost story or something is that live i'd watch that I, I to my recollection I, that's scary I, it seems like it's probably one of those things well it's it's an interesting subgenre, and it's one that i love that my favorite tales from the crypt episode with morton downey jr television terror terror television takes it's a you know when you go into a haunted house live it's like anything could happen and it's, you know i mean <laughs> and it's you know it's like Haral, and that was a spoof off of Geraldo's al capone vault because yeah, yeah. for people who don't know the, the hilarious thing is they found a they were knocking down a building or something, and they knew that there was a vault down there, so they were going to open it live and see what they can find. And they didn't—they found like a wine bottle. They didn't find anything, yeah. you know. But at the time, you don't realize that. But that's the kind of the chances you take. Yeah. You know. So um, yeah. So then that—that's gripped me. You know, following it with the newspaper articles. I got the big readers' digest when I was little. That the, the next issue was all about Titanic. Everybody and every form there was. Um, I remember there's an episode of like um, uh, Amazing Friends. Or they resurrect the Titanic and it comes out and it's like a like a like a fucking claw monster going like a shark yeah, coming yeah. to kill people you know and it's like so it was always like in our psyche and then it just seeing these movies and this movie especially uh, it really like I guess what is that like it got into my imagination thinking about it and stuff yeah, like yeah. that so um, and you have this movie that was has a absolutely beautiful score by John Barry yeah and sadly they say that the score is lost. They, they've never um, the company ITC Entertainment that put this out. Th- this movie subsequently bombed, and I, with some other stuff that they did, the company went under. So they think they 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 just threw out all their stuff they had. Yeah. So like the you, original masters for the score. Yeah. Apparently, like a couple of cues exist, but the actual score in its entirety doesn't exist. And then in like 1999, they tried to hire some. Silver Screen Records or whatever tried to hire a guy that worked with Barry, not on this score, but <laughs> later in life. I knew to, him. To kind of like an arranger to try to recreate and record, like just do a recording of it. One doesn't exist, so let's record it. But uh, And apparently it's one of the best, it's considered one of the best re-recordings they've done, but it's still not this exact score. Well, because they cite... The timings yeah. are, we- are weird, and they and even the way it was like re-orchestrated so that certain parts of the orchestra were highlighted. That weren't in the that original. That weren't highlighted in the original and they, score. And they cite like tempo differences, and it's like, if you're gonna, if you're painstakingly trying to, that's like another, uh, they released a, uh, a CD version of the Lalo Schifrin and Bullet soundtrack, and I was head over the heels about it, and then when I listened to it, and you look at it, no, it's not the original. It's a re-recording of it. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. why 
They don't, it never, from what I remember, they don't cite in that Lalo Schifrin recording that they lost the masters. It's yeah, just yeah. a matter of they, I don't, why don't you release what people, why do like a, uh, I don't know, not shittier, but like a different version that people know and love. So that's why this mystifies me when they try to do it, but then they're like, we're going to put our own take on it. <laughs> we're going to add Casio keyboards. Yeah. And hey, gonna, well, <laughs> let's, you know, let's make it a two disc or do the, do it exactly. Yeah. And, and then, then you do, do your own take as yeah. a bonus material. So this, and then like we've talked about in the Black Hole podcast, I'm a huge fan of the Black Hole, Disney's the Black Hole that came out at the same time. And John Barry does the score for that. And those two movies are within a year of each other. So I found for when we did this podcast rewatching these movies that some of these cues sound interchangeable like the yeah, cues yeah. of of when they're underwater in this movie with the deep sea subs and then some of the stuff in space with the robots like when the robots like the sentries find the sentries that they killed bob and um uh the other uh robot going around uh that they're they're interchangeable so i uh, it 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 is a lesson that's more in your realm of like it's interesting the artists what what they're doing at at the time uh, different projects and how stuff crosses over. Oh, sure. You know? I mean, uh, you know, he might have been working with the same orchestra. It was around the same time. So he's, you know, it's a, any kind of artist, you know, they have a, you know, it's kind of like you have a period, yeah. you know, in a way that the, you, this is the, what you're interested in. This is what you're doing. So if you listen to, you know, just going to correlate it with like uh, my book, which is more horror scores, for instance, uh, a lot of like that mid 80s, early to mid 80s carpenter stuff all has a very similar feeling to it and that's because they're using the same equipment and alan howarth studio alan howarth is is working with them if you go with nightmare on elm street uh and then another west Craven movie but both scored by charles bernstein there's actually a very similar fear between the the nightmare on elm street score and this deadly friends our deadly friend score um so it's not on common i think for an art for a composer to have similarities especially when they're so close together i mean i think you can you could are you know you could easily arguably say in most cases you'll recognize a john williams score yeah from like the first couple notes <laughs> you know from anybody but uh definitely when you get into time periods because you're using the same kind of recording technology you're it's like I said, sometimes using the same musicians, it you know, there's a lot of similarities besides just the fact that the one that that's one person is writing the music. He's probably using the same orchestrator, you know, that he used on both films. So, and he talks about at the time too. He lost, I think, both his parents, and there's some other inner turmoil. So it was a very dark period. And you know, uh, I'm not too confident enough to start talking about certain people's techniques. But like you said, John Williams is a sound, and John Barry for me has a beautiful sound with the horns and it's very like rich with the like the french sure. horns and and especially in these two movies with the with the the title theme that is very much like a victorian kind of a yeah. flair for the to, to kind of like remind people of the gloriousness maybe of the sure. like well, even, the titanic was you know john barry's, john barry's best known for doing the james bond stuff and even though the james bond scores are very different you yeah. can still hear similarities like yeah watching this uh tonight like you can tell it's John Barry, and it's not because I'm heavily educated on John, John Barry scores, but it's because I have the point of reference is those James Bond scores that we all grew yeah. up with, and you can kind of hear that there is certain sensibilities that even though they're very different, there is a similarity. Another score that I didn't even know he did, which is a movie that you and I saw when we were in college, and I just picked up an original pressing of the score which is the knack and how to get it which is a very different jazzy that 60s is, uh, and i have that 60s CD. british yeah 
you know, like Jazzy beat, beat Nikki. Yeah. Very cool score, but, but it's very that's completely very, different. Spec- and and, and that's very, from what I remember, it's very heavy on like a Hammond B three organ. It's yeah, very, yeah. You know, it's very it's like a totally Jimmy different, Smith. It's a totally you know, different feel. vibe. So there's an instance where, <clears throat> I mean, Morricone is a perfect example, and and uh, James Hancock and I were just talking about his, the scores he did for Argento on uh, on his podcast, Wrong Real, when we did the Animal Trilogy, and even how. Just in those three movies, those scores are so different. So you do have someone who like like Marcone, who, you know, he did so so much work. The volume of his output was so crazy that like does he even remember it all sometimes? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, like sure, you hear the, sp- the spaghetti western stuff and the stuff he did with Leone, you can say like, okay, that's the same guy. But then he was working with so many different people. So there's an instance where somebody could be doing a movie, you know today and then doing a movie tomorrow and it sounds almost completely different yeah but uh in most cases uh it's not surprising that a guy like john barry has a sound i mean it's what it's really what you know makes somebody just you know uh, distinguished you know i always say my problem with a lot of blues guitars now or if you listen to uh, guitar players it's like they all sound like Steve Ray Vaughan. You know, yeah. they all have, they're all great. They're better. They're better guitar players than I am. But they, what makes a, to me, what makes a great guitar player is a guitar player that has his own style, even if it's not as polished as, as, as someone who's, you know, classically trained or a jazz guitar player. But I would much rather listen to like a sloppy guitar player where when you listen to it, like, you know who that guy is. <laughs> like, yeah. you can say, that's him. Yeah. As opposed to a guy who's, you know, much more competent on the instrument. Technically but, sound. But more but, of a generic yeah. sound. Yeah, um, absolutely. And John Barry is, you know, we, you know, we just mentioned Morricone. I mean, John Barry's up there. as If you were going to do like top 10 film composers of all time, John Barry would most likely, most people would put John Barry in that list. Yeah, and for me, I think growing up with uh, having these two um, stories, Black Hole and this, that are similar in the sense of the adventure fantasy aspect uh and then scored by him with those horns it's 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 kind of like haunting for me that's always stuck with me those sure. these two soundtracks now there a lot of people may not know um that ballard it's been declassified now the reason yeah. actually ballard was out there was actually much like a, a raise the titanic clive cluster novel yeah, yeah. that people didn't know the um, he was at the time the number one person in his field doing underwater stuff and he was pioneering I think I forget what maybe it's Cambridge or somebody but he's affiliated with somebody in Massachusetts and they you know they were pioneering deep water submersibles and robotics and you know and, and robots um, and the government came to him and said hey look we had two subs that it, we lost in the 50s and 60s the Thresher and the Scorpion they were nuclear subs and for whatever reason, there was there was terrible tragedies where they lost both these subs, for uh, just on you know maybe it went too far down or or something not not any kind of like you know uh, fighting kind of yeah thing. it didn't get shot no <laughs> it, it was shot, it was just, just like in procedures there was there was catastrophic things you know and that you know like much like what happens with the Russians about five or ten years ago with the the I forget the name of the sub that they lost theirs yeah. so they were worried they wanted to check how the reactors were doing on these two ships. 
but they can't just go out into the waters that the world knows 20 years ago the government lost these two subs and start fucking around because yeah. it's going to get the Cold War Soviets' attention, USSR. So what they needed to do was they needed to have this cocked up theory. Oh, we're going to have this big, you know, explorer going out to find the Titanic when actually he was being uh, uh, sanctioned and funded to go just check to make sure these two uh, subs, the, the reactors were still intact. They weren't leaking in the ocean. You know, the reactors were still there. They weren't like secretly taken by the fucking Soviets, you know, because yeah, yeah. everyone was always paranoid back then because maybe they could have. We've seen a lot of John Barry, James Bond movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, it's <laughs> You know, <laughs> we're going through the same thing now, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's uh, all very, you it all know, comes around. So uh, Ballard makes, he agrees, but he says, well, listen, if you're giving me like. I'm going out there. Yeah. How about I go look for the Titan? <laughs> well, yeah. And I think they may even come to him with like, we'll use it as, uh, you know, you're going to go get look to Titanic or something like that. I forget. They, they, they sell him on that. that yeah, your, yeah. your cover story is you're looking for the Titanic. So what, Bear, what, what, what Ballard says is, well, if, you, if, if the expedition is going to be, say, 300 days, I want to make sure that once I sign off on the Thresher and the Scorpion, the two subs you have me looking for, whatever days we have left, I can dedicate till the last day us trying to find the Titanic. So they agree. So he very quickly goes and does what they want him to do, um, checks on these subs. And then he starts by using all this kind of technology and last known coordinates and, and sonar because the, the Titanic is, we find out is laying in over two miles deep of the Atlantic ocean. And he uses like a lawn mowing technique where they just like, they just, they just like, you know, scour. Yeah, make and they, a grid almost. Yeah. And they were doing grid positions because they had an idea where they knew the stats of the night, what the, the current was, what the wind was, where the last thing was. I mean, they're doing it in the movie. Yeah, and, it, and that's exactly what they used, and they were able to find a thing. So now, there is a story out there that I guess, like we said, people know the the, the story about the Titanic, but the, the, the reason behind it, and then uh, what some people are, it's starting to come out now that the actual tragedy of why all this went down, and the, and the ship actually sank, is where we get into like the conspiracy theories, and the... Um, and the alternative facts of what happened. In like 1988 or 89, there was this guy who came to light named Wilhelm Bill Mueller, and he was in his early 90s, and he ended up dying uh, in uh, 1991 at age 98. So in 88 or 89, he's like 95. He comes forward because his woman, Diane uh, Bristow, who was a flight attendant who retired, and she wanted to become an author. She was a flight attendant for Eastern. She was like, oh, maybe the same thing like uh, Clustler, uh, maybe I'll start writing some novels. So she, her original idea was to, to set a fictional story on the Titanic and have it be like a love story or something. Yeah, yeah. But when she starts researching it and she starts seeing stuff and because she has the background as a flight attendant, she knows how things work and how things go. So she starts getting more involved in the lore. She decides she wants to do like a nonfiction. So she starts contacting people who know people who are still alive, whatever. So this guy comes across her radar and this guy admits to her he's never talked before, but he admits I was on the Titanic that night. He lives up in Canada. And she's like, why haven't you ever told anybody before? And he says, because it was just such a traumatizing experience. It's something I just put out of my mind. Like a lot of people to be, sure, yeah. you know, why would I want to continue talking? <laughs> like, why would I want to relive that experience yeah. by talking about it? So he, we, we find out he was born in 1892, and we find out that he got a job with the White Star Line, who was the 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 the, the ship, the, the company that ran the Titanic under 
uh, Bruce Ismay. And a lot of these names, if you've seen the James Cameron Titanic movie, you'll recognize Ismay was the person who was on the Titanic that night who was the White Star Alliance representative. Now, if we go back a little bit, the biggest thing that was happening prior to the Titanic getting built was that you had the big conversion from um, sail ships, you know, th- big mast things to steam. And yeah. that was the big turnover. So you have a guy named J.P. Morgan, who I think people know because they know the bank now. Yeah. But he was a huge railroad baron conglomerate. And he re- quickly realizes because him and his boys have completely railroaded the entire U.S. And I think they're doing it across the, con- the, the world. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. If we extend this to like the, 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 the seafaring, because now people are starting to use, there's these opulent transatlantic cruisings because back in the day, it wasn't, uh, the adventure was getting there. You know, it wasn't. It didn't take like say six or eight hours to fly overseas. It would take like a week. Yeah. So you wanted to, them to be like on a f- uh, floating hotel. So he get he goes to his investors and he says, "Listen, this is almost like a client cluster novel. We're getting into like the the, the, uh, <laughs> the details." He says, "Let's buy." All the freaking mar- you know uh, maritime companies, White Star Line, Cunard, the German one, the French one, and we'll make a big conglomerate and we'll have the control of the complete passage. So he goes, they all agree, he, he goes to these companies, and this is around 1901 or 1905, and uh, it starts going through. But then suddenly, like Germany's like, wait a minute. You know, we don't want uh, uh, an American-owned company telling our, our shipping what to do or English. So the Kaiser steps in and backs out, and he actually takes them out of the, 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 the fray. You have the Cunard line, who is the competitor White Star line. They're like, we don't want to be owned. We don't want to be partner up with the Germans because this is pre-World War I, yeah. and there's tensions are kind of high. So they go, the Cunards go to the, the British government, and they say, look, um, why don't you bail us out? Give us some money. We'll sell to you. You can be like, uh, have a partnership. And the British government agrees, but they have a caveat that they want them to create the two fastest ships in the world, and they want them to be easily converted, converted into cargo carriers, like troop carriers, yeah. if war breaks out. So because of that, we get the Mauritania and the Lusitania, these two ships that people may know the Lusitania, which was torpedoed uh, in 1917, which or 1914, that got us into World War One, America. Um, so that kind of like pisses off uh, J.P. Morgan because his plan doesn't go as, as, as planned. And then these the two biggest liners in the world by Cunard are made, the Mauritania and Lusitania. So to get back at him, he takes the White Star Line and he makes this thing called the Olympic class. And it's going to be three ships. And he designs the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. The Olympic comes out first in like 1909 or 1910 and it sails for a bit. And the uh, twin of it, the Titanic, comes out in 1912. There's only like some differences uh, between the two. Titanic's a little larger. Uh, there's like they, they enclose some of the promenades because people were complaining that it's too windy out night. Yeah. So if you look at like some footage, sometimes uh, you could tell under the this is getting really in the weeds. But like if you look at they're saying, well, remember the Titanic, and you look, it could be the Olympic that they're showing. They ended up making the Britannic in 1913 or 14, but it had all these safeguards put in because of the Titanic disaster, like. Uh, lifeboats and stuff, but didn't even get into commercial use because then the war broke out. It became a hospital ship, and then it was torpedoed and it sank in like 1917, like off the coast of maybe like Ireland or something like that. So the war is on the horizon, and there's this big competition between the White Star Line, which is Great Britain, and Germany. Great Britain's an island in the middle of nowhere, and it needs to be able to have like coal. Like their whole uh, industry is based off of like coal and stuff like that. So they need to keep their shipping lines open because they have stuff all over the world, you know. And the Germans start doing this 
you know, the Germans, Germans are fucking with them and like that, you know, that kind of a thing. So what ends up happening is the, the April the 10th, the, the Titanic 1912 comes out. Uh, it's the opening day, you know, it's, it's the first day. And there's a coal strike going on at the time. So what they have to do is they have to take all the coal from the surrounding ships of the White and fill the Titanic up while people are boarding. Now, what they think happens here is that uh, when the coals shoot who, into who the... Who thinks this? Uh, the, now the... Uh, this woman writer or just the history? History, historians. They think a coal fire was started because when the coal's shooting down these bunkers, a spark could have happened. And as the Titanic's leaving, there's a coal fire on the right side, the starboard, one of the starboard bunkers on the right side. And this fire goes for how many days? The firemen, I mean, this is all documented. There was, yeah, yeah. There was a coal fire, but this is how they think it might have started because it was like a spark back then. So the firemen fight the, 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 the fire for days. It's not a, a, a bad fire, but what they have to do is they have to move all the coal from the right to the left side. And at the same time, it's heating the bulkheads up. They're getting like cherry red hot. Yeah, yeah. So the, they're keeping an eye on it. And then they, I think they only uh, extinguish the fire like the night before the Titanic hits an iceberg. So what this woman finds out talking to Mueller is that he was on the Titanic and he worked uh, as an assistant to a subordinate of Ismay and they were deadheading on the Titanic. So that's why they never found in their and names. Ismay was the, the, was the person who was the head of the White Star Line. He was, was like the representative of the... Yeah, you had Thomas Andrews, who was the architect of the Titanic on that night. You had, uh, uh, what's his face, Smith, the, uh, John E. Smith or E. John, John E. Smith, John Edward Smith. The, the captain, and then you had, you know, Ismay, because it's the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. So uh, they end up going out, and what ends up happening is that the Titanic ends up hit. There is a issue here where Ismay wants to get the ship there quicker than possible. They're supposed to get in at, like, uh, Wednesday morning, but they're 17 hours ahead of schedule. So Ismay's like, let's light all the boilers, go as fast as we can. We're going to get on a maiden voyage. We're going to get there qu- the quickest it's ever been. It's going to come like two days behind schedule, and that's, and that's what we want to do. Ahead of schedule. Ahead of schedule, I'm sorry. So they're going, and what ends up happening is at some point, they get a, 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 a distress call from a ship near them called the a freighter, the, Do- the Deutschlander, which is a German ship, a freighter. Yeah. And it's disabled. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just lost r- rudder, and it's, and it's disabled, and it's looking for help. So suddenly, this is the, where this is what Mueller says he was aware of, privy to these conversations. Ismay says to the captain, "Let's divert course, and how awesome would it be for us to go to the Deutschlander, hook her up? We come in still on time, and we're towing a freaking other vessel. Plus, because of maritime rights, uh, because of piracy laws, or whatever. If you take a." a, a a ship that's disabled and tow it back. Now it's under your control. They have to, you either have rights to the ship or they have to pay a fee. This is maritime yeah, yeah. law, you know, that to, to get the thing back. So this is the reason why they think that the Titanic leaves position and goes out of the, sh- the regular shipping lane and goes into uncharted water, water where it's not supposed to be. But this is very serious because if there's a disaster that happens, what'll happen is the insurance companies who are insuring the ship they can renege and say, we're not paying you because there was, uh, you know, shit done on your end. To, to, yeah, you know, you're, you're, taking on, you're taking risks that aren't insured, yeah. basically. So if that came back, if something were to happen when they're, you know, that could be some shit. And then the, the, the insur- insurance companies could refuse to pay. So this is like a quote-unquote conspiracy theory that pops up when this 
former flight attendant starts researching. Yeah, and talks this to this guy like Mueller. This was the late 80s, she said? This is like 88, 89. She's, she's talking to this 95-year-old man who, yeah, yeah. who said he was okay. on the Titanic. So what ends up happening is I think the Deutschlander ends up getting help. So they kind of slow down. But as we know, the Titanic hits an iceberg. And um, new technology as of 2017, people are speculating that. They also think not only did the ship graze that we know the iceberg, since people may know that only 10% of an iceberg is visible, 90% of it's underwater, yeah. that they think that the, the Titanic actually um, bottom-ended and went over, like lifted up. Yeah, yeah. And went over it and came back Kind down. of like grounded yeah. on the ice. On the and ice then... and went over it because of the momentum. They said if, if the Titanic hit head-on, it would have been fine. But what they did was they tried to stop. They put it in reverse and they tried to go left. You, you know, it's like a train trying to stop something in the water. Yeah, well, stop. yeah. I mean, even if you're on a little small boat yeah, you think to, of try how... to try to stop that thing. Is... Yeah, so that's so there's, of course, there's always the Monday morning quarterbacking of what you could have done because yeah, yeah. the Titanic was designed that the watertight compartments could be, I think it was, you could have the four, four first consecutive ones flooded. And then you can have like any one through six flooded, but you couldn't have all six flooded at the sink because then it'd be too heavy. Yeah. And then the big error was because they were trying to cut costs when they were building, J.P. Morgan's decision was you, you only have the watertight bulkheads go to a certain like uh, um, deck. It didn't go all the way up. And this is becomes... The, the the ends up hurting the Titanic because like an ice cube effect. Yeah. Once it sinks, it starts pulling it down. It just goes over the water, and that's how the thing yeah. Goes yeah. Basically, up. had it gone all the way up, then just basically one chamber would have filled when they. But the problem is, down. like the wall is only up so high, so that once that one fills, then it goes over the top of it, fills the next one, and then it just becomes a chain reaction that goes all the way to the back of the ship, yeah. pretty much. And then they're looking at like uh, evidence that in certain boiler rooms, when they have two pumps going, there's people because um, uh, the Captain Smith and Ismay, person or uh, Thomas Andrews, who's the architect, personally go try to sound the ship, and they realize that shit's going down. And Ismay only gives the ship an hour, 40 minutes to an hour to, to live. And then we're fucked. And I, uh, I'm sorry, Andrews. I keep saying Ismay. Andrews, the architect, he, after they sound the ship, he says, we only got an, about an hour and we're fucked. So they start sending out CQD at the time, which was still part of the British nomenclature, which is a distress call we know now of SOS. Yeah. So um, there was evidence in, in some of the back boiler rooms that water was rising from the floor. And that, that, that lends to the reason that not only did it do the, the zigzag on the side of the ship, that it also split, you know, the double hole on the yeah, bottom. Yeah. And it was and water was coming up too, and that's the reason why. So the reason I told you the, the coal fire idea, they have sixty tons of coal on the left side of the ship in the same place but on the left side, and we're 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 flooding on the right. When Jim Cameron either when he was doing the Titanic movie or afterwards, since he's a big fan, he commissioned with his money several experiments with real models to, to, to track the Titanic sinking and yeah. see what it would do. Which is not unlike the movie. Exactly. <laughs> and, but this is later. This is yeah, years yeah. later. So what they end up finding is that every time they do a, 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 a simulation, the ship lists to its side and falls and capsizes literally on its right side. But we all know that's not what happened with the Titanic. So they have to lock the model into a certain point that they know that you know it did until a certain time, and then they can let it go, and then it ends up mimicking what it did that night. So what they realize is that all that fucking coal on the left side of the ship, when they put all that coal on the left side, it listed like a, a, a degree or two to the left. That kept it buoyant, 
and kept it from flooding and actually tipping over. So that actually gave them the ship went down, I think, in two and a half hours. Yeah. So because of all so you, that. Because, because of the fire, they moved the coal from one side of the ship to the other. So it wouldn't catch. And because they moved the coal to the other side of the ship. And, the, and then the it bulkhead. It ended up buying everybody a little more time. About an hour's worth of time. And because they think the bulkheads were so red hot and warped from the fire as well as, the, you know, whatever sure. else, cold water, that contributed to the, the you know, iron, you know, all kinds of shit going on and like that. So. We get a this is where it gets this is where I'm saying we get into the alternative facts and the conspiracy theory aspect of this because uh, a lot of this gets into like uh, you know insurance premiums at the time and what could have happened. The, the, they have a Marconi uh, the Marconi wireless system is what they're using and that's what issues out CQD. There's another one it's called Telefunk. And that's the one that was SOS. And that was the one that was kind of it's developed also the name by the of my band from the 70s. <laughs> Telefunk. <laughs> and you know what you do is you, it, it was a very Philip Glass expand. So he would do all his music verse on, on, uh, on what do you call that? Are you ready? That'd be interesting. Like a whole band and orchestra. Telefunk. Telefunk. We're coming right at you. Stop. So, um, uh, the 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 uh, maritime community was using now SOS, but British were still holding on to this Marconi CQD. Yeah. So they start sending out CQDs. There is a ship close to them, the Frankfurter, the Frankfurter, the Frankfurt, not the Frankfurter. <laughs> it's <laughs> it, was a a, it was a hell of a hot dog. It was a big yeah. hot dog, very buoyant in the cold water. Uh, it is close, and it hears the CQD. But they're like, first, they're like, wait a minute. This is a this is a hoax because we don't broadcast in CQD, we broadcast in SOS. And then when they try to start asking the Titanic, "Do you need assistance?" The, and the captain gets woken up of this ship, the German ship, and he's like, "Let's start going towards him. We're gonna start." So he they start making they turn the ship around, they start going, and uh, the when the wireless operators go tell the captain Nisme, Nisme is like, "Wait, are you out of your fucking mind? One, we're not gonna sink." Two, we can't have a German ship come and save us because if they, the same reason with the other one, if yeah. they start towing us, yeah. how bad is this going to look? We come into like a harbor on the main voyage under tow and then we got to pay like a salvage fee for them doing this. So he's like, no, we only, we can only have British or, or allied uh, um, steamliners respond. So the Carpathia, which is so far away, responds like 57 miles away and it starts coming. So supposedly what ends up happening is they turn away the Frankfurt. This is this is all where it gets into conjecture. Yeah, yeah. But the Frankfurter gets the Frankfurt gets close enough that they they can see the Titanic. But another thing that they do is Ismay orders the Titanic to shoot distress rockets, white rockets. Now white rockets are only used for like events or to this to because white is not going to do anything except uh, illuminate illuminate your way to show. Yeah. Usually for um, distress rockets, you get I think it's red, green, and like blue are distress rockets. So when they get close enough to see the ship and they see white rockets, they're like, oh, they're not in distress. They told us to like f off. They give like a legendary thing. Uh, they wrote back like um, Y A A F. And that stands for you are a fool. And that was the last thing the wireless operator from the Titanic wrote to the Frankfurt Frankfurt wireless operator. So like, okay, they're fine. So they turn away. That night on the Titanic, they say- Why that they, would, that seems kind of mean-spirited. Well, well, yeah, exactly. But that's that's the last thing they wrote because they wanted- they You're wanted, an asshole, get out of well, here. Well, you gotta remember that they're on, they're only on, it's like a party line. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're only on one wireless system and you have all these people getting on and he's trying to talk to say the Carpathia and this guy's butting in. He's like, no, stop. 
So he had to like get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote that to him. So when they get into visual distance, they see, oh, it looks fine. It's it's sitting there. We see white rock, rockets, white rockets going white, off. White, white, white rockets. rockets. <laughs> so they leave. The Titanic, people on the Titanic say that night they saw a mysterious liner in the view. And they say, I mean, I forget. It's like a smokestack or two. And, you know, they don't know what this is. Now, on the other side of the Titanic, there's the there's the Californian, which was very close with a, uh, the captain. Uh, Stanley Lord was their captain. They were also in the in the ice. This is something that the a night to remember goes into, but the Titanic James Cameron movie doesn't go into. That they were close enough because they were going through the ice. They were scared because it was dark, so they they stopped for the night because they didn't want to. You know, it was too um, uh, perilous to try to go through the ice yeah, field, yeah. and they were docked within like I don't know how much, but they were in sight distance. And they had gone to bed for the night. And I think what actually happened was, which they changed after the Titanic sinking, is the wireless operator took his headset off for the night or something. But they start seeing these rockets going off. And they're like, do you think they're, they're in hell? They, you know, they, they wake the captain up, they go up, they look, and they're like, do you think we should, you know, check it out? And they're like, no, they're just white rockets. They're fine. It looks, and it looks like from the angle, because I guess the, since the back, the stern is going up, they think it's going over the horizon line, like it's leaving the yeah. area. So... What ends up happening, if I fast forward to once the, this, these big inquests go on in, in New York and in UK, they completely destroy the Stanley Lord's life, this poor guy. He, he, he's, they take his, his cabin captain thing away. He's never able to do it again. He becomes a scapegoat. It's your fault that, you know, if, if, if the California made it there, they could have saved the whole ship. They blame everything on him. And he ends up taking his life in like 1950. This is the captain. The of captain of the Californian. Californian gets his so, life, his life ruined. Because of this. Because he needed, didn't help. Yeah, but it, but they're trying to explain away the reasons why he didn't help. Was, yeah, you yeah. know One, we didn't know. They, they weren't sending out an, a, a, a proper distress call out to... Um, you know, we did take our headset off, which you know you can't really blame them for because that was, I guess, practice at the time. Yeah. And that we, from visual inspection, we were we were sending, you know, with with the light, they were doing Morse code, and they weren't responding. And then you know the the, the thing. So that's the, another reason why they think that this. So once they realize the ship is, good, and then Andrews comes up, and and a lot of times, and and. In, in, a lot of these movies, Andrews, once he realizes the sh- ship, he's like walking around like, oh, my ship. And like you see this in Titanic and Night to Remember. The guy who designed the ship. The, yeah, the architect where they're like, aren't you going to try for it, Mr. Andrews? And he's like in a daze and he's last seen by the clock, setting the clock by the, you know, it's very sad. But they say actually, according to Mueller, that he was down in the in the, the, the engine room the entire time helping these firemen try to keep the ship afloat. And when he comes up and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you sending sending up only white rockets we don't have enough you know lifeboats we're sinking we're gonna you know i don't know why we're still afloat but we're, we're still afloat. <laughs> so for some you reason know? we're still alive yeah and and isn't and he sa- finally says to ismay you know you're a fucking fool you know you, you've been you know because it's like all oh, that more like poppy we're not we can't it's unthinkable <laughs> you, know, so, you know but really that's how people used to be like good sir this yeah. is this is poppycock <laughs> you know so when he finally gets you know he grabs him he's like you know by the lapel he's like you know we're gonna fucking sink so it becomes detrimental for is made to get Mueller and his guy he's working for off the boat because they need someone to get off the boat that was worked for the White Star Line that can then testify that will say it was force majeure, which is a law term, which means an uh, uh, unforeseeable act of God. They have to let the insurance companies know that we hit an iceberg and that's the reason why we sank. It wasn't because... We were trying to get this other vessel. We were going too fast. All these other things that the insurance company could have said, no, no, we're not going to pay. You know the the, the yeah. you know. So 
Ismay ends up getting off because he dresses like a woman or one of like the one of the last. I don't know if he dresses like a woman or or one of the last boats are lowering and he jumps in, but that also destroys his career too because he's looked as a coward when he gets back and you know when the, in these big inquests, but then. Uh, the ship ends up sinking, like we said, and uh, we talked about everything about the, you know, the, the people um, who died in the water and all that kind of thing. And what ends up happening is when they when they start doing these initial inquests, they talk to the captain of the Frankfurt, Frankfurt, and they talk to all these other people, and they quickly stop that line of questioning, or they don't even question them because they don't want this to come out in sworn testimony that yeah, there was a German ship that was very close that could have helped you, you yeah, know, it yeah. could have saved everybody, or you know, or vice versa, because it would look very bad. So all this kind of stuff is ends up getting deaded, yeah, in yeah. a certain kind sense, swept under the rug, kind yeah. Of thing. And it was declared, and ultimately, you know, an unforeseeable act of God, which you know, and seven hundred people got off, fifteen hundred people ended up dying, and uh, the survivors ended up making it to New York. The 18th of uh, April, and uh, there is another last thing uh, about the night. They said they saw, you know, a mysterious ship out there. And another thing that people are saying now that that could have been was our America Standard Oil had freighters going at all uh, all hours of the night because they were supplying Germany with oil at the time. And that's like kind of the thing, like we're American products selling to like Nazi Germany in World War II. We don't want people to know that before, yeah, prior to the yeah. war. So they don't want it to come out that there was a standard oil freighter of American oil being sent to Germany to, to, to help the Germans because we're allies with the English. The English, there's hostilities growing, you know, that's going to culminate in a couple of years, 1914 of a world war. Yeah. You know, so it's all these you know, pride, just idiocy, you know, uh, and last thing, there is a huge conspiracy theory, which I don't know if I believe, but I'll, I'll put a link because I wrote an article about it some years ago on a, another site I worked for, where the, some people actually say that it was the Olympic that was switched for the Titanic because the Olympic, which is the first ship that was made out of the three, yeah, because it had, it had uh, gotten into a, um, a collision. It, 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 it hit some other ship somewhere and it did a lot of damage and I think that ship might have sank and they had to bring it back into dock to get repaired and there's some pictures of the two ships sitting side by side Titanic's almost completed and you know, they're, they're fixing the Olympic and some people say that there was like they had issues with the Olympic that there was like cost and it, there was too much damage and that the idea was going to be that they switch ships and that they would go out and actually sink the ship but they thought since Ram an iceberg so it would sink so they can take the insurance loss, but they thought since the ship was unsinkable, there would be plenty of time to get everybody off before the ship floundered. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's a, that's an out there. I don't know if I believe that, but that's what some people say that they just switched the linens, they t- change, you know, they fixed the alterations, and it was the actually Olympic that went out, you know, and and, what, and in the and Titanic's then, place. And then the, what way they're going to pass the Titanic off as the Olympic? Yeah, and then the Titanic, which was now the Olympic, would 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 hit an iceberg, sink, and they would get the insurance loss, whatever it was. And everyone would be fine because, you know, it would, it would be afloat for, you know, 10 to 12 hours until eight got yeah. there or whatever, or there was enough lifeboats. And uh, like we said, the third ship, the Britannic, that sank in World War One, and the Olympic ended up just, um, they cut it up for scrap in the late 30s before the Second World, World War. And if you go to Belfast to the Holland and Wolf Museum where the Holland Wolf was the shipyards that made the Titanic, they have the the staircase that was identical from the Titanic's that was in the Olympics in there you can go look at 
you know. So that's setting up this this story here. Set yeah. that table. Yeah, we're 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 now six hours into the podcast. We got all the hors d'oeuvres out of the way. We yeah. had drinks before the. <laughs> Anybody needs anything we before sh- we start? We showed up. We had drinks. We took the salad forks away. <laughs> <laughs> took, are you not using this anymore? We took the little, the, the little coasters and the uh, you know, the the uh, but so. Uh, I know that was long-winded, but it's just... It, I oh, find it's a fascinating story. It's yeah, almost man. like one of these movies, you know. So she ends up... If anybody's interested, it's out of print, but she ended up putting out a book, the woman, uh, uh, Diana Bristow. It's called Titanic Sinking the Myths, and it came out in 1995. She ended up passing away in June of 2001. And... Um, uh, it's if you go look at it on eBay, I don't own it because it's so much money, it's out of print. Hopefully, one day they'll be able to reprint it. But there was a documentary they did on reels some years ago, maybe it was this year, with Francis Fisher and uh, what's his face, Ed Asner. Yeah, Ed Asner playing the Mueller guy and her playing the author, and then you know, they then they did reenactments, huh? So it's it, but it's one of these, much like the Bob Ballard story, a lot of people don't know the real story of why the Titanic was discovered. You know, you know why it sank, but you didn't know. So those are the alternative facts for the evening of uh, yeah, yeah. of what they think actually happened on it. But then it, it gets us to um, this movie tonight. <sighs> All right, now we're going to start <laughs> yeah, the show. Yeah, we're <laughs> Raise the Titanic from 1980, directed by um, Jerry James Jameson. Jerry Jameson, uh, from primarily a t- television director, but yeah. he had directed... Uh, Airport seventy seven, a, a, a big favorite of mine, and that's the that's funny enough is the movie where the uh, airplane sinks, where the land there's airport airport seventy five, and the third one is airport seventy seven, and that's it's the like, one where it's like match game that one, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just right. And George Kennedy's in all of them, and uh, what ends up happening is that they uh, the, the it, for whatever reason uh, the ship the airplane crashes and it sinks and it's the one where it's like completely pressurized and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean you know but he did that and like we've talked about before these disaster movies especially the Irwin Allen movies of the 70s were huge yeah but um, it's a plug for our Towering Inferno podcast and check out the Towering Inferno podcast and um, the he's coming off the success of Airport 77 and the perfect storm that the people who are doing this movie don't realize that this movie takes they shoot this movie in 78 and it takes like two and a half years of post-production before this movie, uh, the Raise the Titanic, comes out in 1980. Yeah. Uh, the perfect storm they don't realize is that Star Wars comes out in 77. And then suddenly everyone's into space and going off. They don't really care about disaster movies anymore. Yeah, I mean, basically, you put it in perspective, what year did the book come out? The book came out, I think, in 75 or 76. So, I mean, this they start making this movie in 78 comes out in 80 but there's like a buying war for the book but realistically rights. yeah we're talking about buying the world buying buying war for the book trying to 76 you know uh you know the you gotta you gotta nail down the rights to make it and then he sells the, it for like four hundred fifty thousand. and then there's a whole part of uh pre-production pre-production and development that might not even be included for the considering that they're saying basically they shot it in 78 which means there's probably like six months to a year of just development to try to get the thing yeah you know they had stanley kramer the director he came on for a couple weeks but then he kind of had creative differences with the special effects so he left and they got jerry jameson to come on yeah and at the time point is you know probably when they started this project nobody knew star wars was going to be yeah, you know, by '78 when they started shooting, they had probably had a pretty good idea that Star Wars was a big deal. But when they got started, 
Star Wars hadn't come out yet. And we talked about in the Black Hole podcast that they originally envisioned that. That started off in development as a disaster movie in space, like a lunar uh, nova, a sun blowing up on a space station, and they have to get off the space station. And then once they they were still in production, because they shot that in 79, it came out in 79, they quickly were like, you know what, let's not make it a disaster movie, we'll just make it into a bona fide star star movie, you know, like a, a outer space movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, so by the time this comes out, you have... Um, uh, beyond the Poseidon Adventure with Telly Savalas, you have The Swarm, and you have a couple of these disaster movies that aren't doing very well. They kind of flop in the box office. So when, by the time this movie comes out, and the price tag on this movie is $30 million, and they say to date it was the it was the most costliest movie of all time? Or is that- yeah, that's why I've read that it was, but I also said, like, I also read that $30 million, but now there's assessments that say it could have been pushing 40. Yeah. Like originally they had said that it was 30. So everybody was under this impression that it was originally going to be like 15 or something. And then for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, the, it skyrocketed. It just it gets skyrocketed to be 30 million. They're saying, there's some reports that say that it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. But now they're saying more current estimates on the budget were actually put it closer to 40 now. And even uh, Clustler, when he's. Um, you know when when they're talking to him about when the movie's in development, he's like he's like I hear the rumors the the, the budget's fifteen million, but he's like but I don't know how you're going to do that with, you know the, the the epic scenes of the 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 ship actually surfacing versus it coming into New York Harbor. He's like I don't know how you're going to do that for that budget, and I think we always talk about it on this podcast. This movie could be a shining example of why in five to ten years there was such a big uh, push and a big. Um, uh, embracing of CGI because yeah. this movie is a shining example of how they, they ended up making a uh, like a 55 foot replica of the Titanic uh, to be the thing that they sink and then they they raise and uh, that ended up costing like between five and seven million dollars because it was so big they couldn't fit it into any existing like yeah. uh, p- tank. Tanks. So they had to build a special custom it, tank in for the- <laughs> Yeah, and it was the first Horizon tank ever. And in, in it's, it's, it's a pretty cool idea where they built it outdoors so that you could have a scale model. And you can, if you set your camera properly, you could set it to the to the actual horizon of the ocean, and it looks like you know it goes sh- on forever. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's you're sh- yeah you're in a freaking uh, soundstage. Yeah. Now, put it put in perspective, there's estimations of this movie costing between thirty and forty million dollars. Now, and uh, then before, well, let me just interject. I'm sorry. Sure. Which is funny, it costs f- between five and seven, I think, to make the model and the the tank. In unadjusted nineteen twelve dollars, it costs the Titanic like six million. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the actual ship itself in nineteen eleven twelve to build was unadjusted. Of nineteen twelve dollars yeah. was about six million to make, so it cost a million dollars more in uh, nineteen seventy eight money to actually yeah. build the, the 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 scale model and the tank, which is crazy. Now, to put it in perspective, the uh, the effects in this movie are beautiful. Uh, don't get me wrong, uh, but it, they're limited to like this one effect of this ship and it's being raised and everything. So we're talking about a budget of reportedly somewhere between probably thirty and forty million dollars. Empire Strikes Back comes out the same exact year, insane with 
the AT-AT walkers and the Millennium Falcon. Cloud City. And now the Cloud City. The big like, fight at the end and him going into Carbonite. And, and, the, uh, and they estimate that the... the, the what's the... the, 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 the Dagobah system. All that <laughs> shit with him and, and Yoda. Yeah. Talking about, we're talking about an effects extravaganza. They're, they're raising a TIE fight. Not a TIE fighter. A uh, What do you call those fighters? That the, that the, X-Wing. An X-Wing out of the... They're raising an X-Wing themselves out of the body <laughs> with of the force. Yeah. Uh, but the estimated same comes out the same exact year. The estimated budget for that movie is between eighteen and thirty. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that's that's a Star Wars movie. So and way it, more effects. They could be the best Star Wars movie. Some people say. Yeah, yeah. Of the of original the, trilogy of the series. So, yeah. just to put it in perspective, such a huge effects movie gets brought in for maybe half the budget. Yeah. Of the of raise the Titanic, which is just. Uh, you know, in in a way, unfortunately, this there was really kind of no way for this movie to be successful. Yeah, at I the mean, box office, it, it, it became <laughs> like a dud in itself. Yeah, how do you? I mean, it had to be. In, 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 and the, I mean, even if it was, I mean, it ends up making, and you usually get to this stuff later, but it ends up making uh, well, like seven million dollars yeah, at the box that's office. So that's abysmal. I, and even though that, that's good, I mean, in, in 70s money, 7 million. Yeah, but considering how much money they spent on it, I yeah. mean, there was really no way that they were going to recoup their expenses in the box office. I mean, they had some free marketing going for them because there was some expedition that went out to try to find it like a couple months before the ship, the movie came out. They didn't, they didn't find anything. But then they think what sank the movie was at the time, there was a TV movie, uh, much like how I discussed the other week with the Romney, Marsh, Scarecrow, Disney thing where they made a TV movie and then they made a theatrical movie. Yeah. There was a TV movie called SOS Titanic. And that was like a three-plus-hour night thing that they aired on television. And then, I don't know where, maybe across the world, they cut it to like an hour and a half or two hour and released that. And that came out like a couple months before this movie. So people maybe were sick of Titanic, you know? Yeah, it could go either way. I mean, the, the producer blames that, but, you know, no. I mean, it very well, you could also argue that, you know, it would have maybe been more publicity, you know. You yeah. could take that stance that having something Titanic related could have gotten people yeah, excited. Yeah, for and then the, it's like another one. It's like, oh yeah, okay, you know, we're into it because it's, yeah, because it's on the mind. Yeah, yeah. But uh, who knows? You uh, know, it's all perspective. Now, the the big thing with uh, Cussler at the time was he gets mad because they they really change his book, and I love the book. And his book, like I said, his yarns are always these adventure things that just keep going. Yeah, they yeah. never really stop, and that's the greatest. They're not like it's not too heavy. It's just light adventure that dudes and chicks love. And his his book concept, uh, it starts, like I said, the first chapter starts on the night the ship's sinking. Then the second chapter is, you know, you, they're, they're looking for this byzanium, this fake metal because uh, or uh, because in, in the story is basically that there's this new um, special uh, satellite missile system called the Sicilian Project. And what it is, it's, it's going to be, the system that'll be able to like stop ballistic missiles from entering. Kind of like Star, I guess what like the, the Reagan Star Wars, the Star was Wars project. Yeah, yeah, he saw this movie. Not He's the like, movie oh, Star Wars, but Reagan. Reagan list. Star Wars systems. You're going to use like um, in this movie, the Star the Reagan's eighty Star Wars was laser stuff. The, yeah, they yeah. thought it was going to be laser laser technology. And this, but it's using, the same. 
yeah you know idea that it's supposed to stop missiles that are, gonna that hit are coming into the yeah this is they're using sound technology which is interesting because nowadays they actually have the government has these sound they're yeah. coming out with these very directional like boom mic sound sure yeah that you can sonic sonic stop people right they're using it in riots now and on the battlefield so it basically the sicilian project was this highly top secret project that that, that once this thing was up and running that it would stop ballistic missiles from Russia, most notably because it was the Cold War from entering. But it was so powerful, they needed this uh, this something to power it. And evidently, they find out because of the, the McGovern, adamantium, the adamantium claws <laughs> that they, they're no, they're all fresh out of adamantium because Weapon X they're using adamantium. They have to use this other ore called byzanium. So. Uh, in the book and in the movie, this is where the movie starts, is they go to where they think the mine is, and they go to this island off the coast of Russia, that this big snow-barren island that's huge. And they, when they get there, they find um, that it's already been mined, and there's, there's even a couple of there's people frozen there. And what they find, and they find army stuff, and like it goes in the movie, is that uh, this guy had already got the idea of trying to get it out because he knew the, po- the, the possibilities of this, of this being like to... You know, at the time, get off of steam or whatever diesel, yeah, yeah. and so he mined it. And then in the in the book, there is a adventure of them trying to get you know back to America as soon as possible. So they're fighting back like the French or I mean I forget who else are like sending hitmen. So everybody gets killed by this last guy. The guy gets on the the next um, commercial ocean liner sailing for America. It's the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. He gets on the Titanic and then. He thinks he's scot free. He's got the byzanium in a in a vault downstairs. So this then, is backstory that's in the book that's not in the movie. Yeah, I mean, but it's the, talked about in the movie. Yeah, and then you see in the movie the the beginning they start off where when you get introduced to Dirk Pitt, he's almost like he's fighting Russians off in this. Yeah, yeah. and it's very much like a spy. Dirk Pitt is played by a guy named um, Jordan Knight. And um, am I getting? Yeah, um, Richard. Knight. Richard and Jordan Knight from uh, <laughs> Richard and Jordan. New kids on the block. He's played by one of the new kids. Yeah, Richard Jordan, where Clussler, uh, Cussler at the time thought like a um, James Gardner or even a Steve McQueen could 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 play Dirk Pitt, who he envisioned. But then Steve McQueen, he at the time we we've been we've talked about, he was declining a lot of roles. He declines it, and they get uh, this gentleman, Richard Jordan, because he's fresh off of Logan's Run. Yeah, yeah. And, but he's not as high as a bankable star. But they're looking. But he's for, a good-looking guy. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely the kind of guy that. I could see people putting their money on because yeah. he's he's very handsome. Um, he's got a look to him, which is really weird for me that I, I kind of fell in love with as a young kid because at the same time I saw this movie, I saw the Dino De Laurentiis version of King Kong. Yeah. And you remember how Bridges looked in that movie with the, with beard, the beard and yeah, the long yeah. hair? So and, and then I see Dirk Pitt in this. I always want, when I grew up, I always wanted to have that look. The, <laughs> The, the short beard with the long kind of hair that's like to your ears, you know, yeah, like, but yeah. I can't do it because my hair is an afro; it just grows up and out. Yeah, you yeah. know, and I can't even grow a full beard; it's all pot patchy. But uh, but he's like, yeah. But I can see it. that like somebody's like, look, he's coming off Logan Run. Like, let's get him, like, and we'll make him. A, the, uh, uh, yeah, he'll yeah, be a star. He'll be a star. I mean, movie. he goes on. He's in Dune for, yeah. for some Saturday night for some sleepover fair. He's in Dune. He's in. Uh, uh, he goes on to be in Solar Babies, which is a yeah. movie I love. But he ends up dying tragically in the early 90s of a brain tumor. He has yeah. a tumor, so he, he dies like in his early 50s. But so this is, is like probably the beginning of Custler not being happy with this project was the casting. Well, the first, the script rewrites. So that's why I brought up 
Kostler starts getting pissed because they don't like his script. They think it's uh, they have issues with it. So they start bring, they bring another author in, then they bring in script writers, and then they what ends up happening in the, in the Kostler novel is once they get the Titanic up, the whole third and fourth act, the, the, they encounter a a, a, a hurricane. And they gotta. They're like, do we abandon the Titanic? We're like, we can't. We have so the the hurricane ensnares the entire exposition, and then Russians get on board with the SEAL team. Yeah. So it turns into this amazing. They could probably do it nowadays, uh, where you have this uh, ship that's that's uh, you know just abandoned in the water, and it's a hurricane outside, and there's no light on board, and it's and it's Dirk Pitt trying to like save these hostages that were. Um, taken by this elite Soviet SEAL team and his helicopter crashes on board and they think he's dead, but he's able to survive and it's and it's the ship's like, you know, adrift and it's yeah, yeah. it's like right out of like the wreck of the Mary Deer and it's like it's like such a great idea, like in the at night in a storm, you know. But meanwhile they they're like producers are looking at us like we can't do that. We can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> how the fuck are we gonna how in nineteen okay, we could do this in two thousand one, but how in nineteen seventy eight are we gonna be able to We can't do that. Yeah, unless that's the whole unless maybe that's the entire movie yeah and that's the problem is that you know i mean you look at like something like the the the, um the poseidon adventure like how much that costs because back then it's all practical effects yeah you know so that's why i think a lot of this this is a movie that is an example of like look how much the the budget skyrocketed hey we can just put our eggs in one basket with a computer and this hard drive right here and then that could be you know so I think that's the reason why. So they end up changing significantly, like we see in the movie, the whole back yeah. end of the movie. Once and there's the- reportedly anywhere between the reports, it could be t- anywhere between 10 and 17 writers touched yeah, this script. Because they, try- they actually tried to get a, uh, a a writer's credit. They submitted for a writer's credit. Yeah. So that's that's on a record for like, uh, you know, to, 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 to try to, you know, get, get, a, get a name on the, on, the, on the thing. So he's, so Kostler gets so mad and the movie comes out. Not only does it flop, like nine months later, he goes and sees Law, Raiders of the Lost Ark with Spielberg, and he's like, "This is the movie that yeah. ra- that raised the Titanic." The book with because raised the Titanic. His book, it's raised the Titanic exclamation point. Yeah. They take the exclamation point off, and as the, the, the that was the joke in Hollywood when they took the exclamation point off to make the movie, they took all the action. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Custler's like, this is what Dirt yeah. Pitt was supposed to be. This, this is it. In this the is, I'm watching what you my know, movie should have been like. like. A, a serial adventure, much like a Doc Savage, because you know, Dirk Pitt became like a modern Doc Savage that people weren't writing anymore. That kind of yeah, adventure yeah. intrigue. You know, it was more just like Cold War spies or that kind of you yeah. know adventure stuff. So, but he gets so gets such a bad taste in his mouth. The taste is so bad. In that <laughs> How mother- bad is it? <laughs> it's so bad that he says he will never sell a, a script again to Hollywood and he doesn't sell a script to Hollywood until 2005 he sells Sahara the Matthew McConaughey movie Steve Zahn Matthew McConaughey Penelope Cruz vehicle and that bombs too because they end up also gutting his script mucking it up and he's again he's like just shoot the movie as the book is written Yeah. yeah. so so then that's another one so that's why people ask him why aren't you gonna aren't you ever gonna get so that's why some people may not know if you're not a book reader you might not know Clive Cussler because a lot of his stuff isn't adapted, but they it's say it's only him, these two movies. Yeah, he's, they say, "Well, are you ever going to sell?" He goes, "Well, have you seen Raise the Titanic to compared to my gone. book?" Yeah, if, if they even do it then, and you know, at the time they were they they, they were comparing his writing to um, Michael Crichton because Michael Crichton was doing like uh, like it's tech noir where yeah, Michael yeah. Crichton's doing technology like uh, he's doing Westworld at the time, he's doing Coma, he's doing like. Uh, 
you know, he ends up doing Jurassic Park, which is like uh, um, gene splicing and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Where uh, Hustler is doing the other end, he's doing like, like action adventures, seafare, yeah, historical fiction. He's tying it to real events and stuff like that. So he's able to. That's why the, the comparison. Now, unfortunately, because of all this, we're left with a movie that. Uh, I, pretty much its plot can be summed up like, you know, there's so much of it that, that gutted from the story that, you know, Dion set up the idea of this uh, def- missile defense system that they need this... The Sicilian project. Yeah, the, and they need this power source. They need the Byzanium. The Byzanium. And then it's like, okay, where is it? They A couple of clues. Doesn't take very long to them to come up with a theory that it's in the hull of the, <laughs> of the Titanic. And then it's just like, okay, then let's go raise the Titanic. They go, they raise the Titanic. And then there's this very small subplot involving Russia. Yeah. But, like, that's it. Like, that's really all that. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, let's, it's probably on the Titanic. Let's find the Titanic. Then let's raise the Titanic. Yeah. And then the, and then the movie. <laughs> you have some intrigue of like the, uh, you know, with the, with the, because uh, at the time you weren't diving that deep. So like, with yeah. the but, the, it, but it's, you know, it's, it's keeping that very simplistic plot. Yeah. Forward, Interesting. It's forwarding it. Yeah. Yeah. It's key. I mean, it's making it, you know, enjoyable. To, it's making it like worthwhile. It. But at, at the end of the day, you have a very simple storyline, which yeah. is like, let's just like, okay, we set it up in like in the first 20 minutes that this is what we need. Where could it be? It's in the Titanic. Then let's just go, let's raise the Titanic. Yeah. And, it, and another subplot they dropped from the book, which is really good, was the mental state of the head guy uh, Seagram, who's the, the the scientist behind all this, that kind of like Dirk Pitt is butting heads with through the movie. His wife in the movie is Ann Archer, who I absolutely yeah, love. I'm yeah. going to take a minute and just proclaim my love for the goddess that I know as Ann Archer. I've loved her in all kinds of... I just recently watched on... We talk about, like, you know, getting the antenna television. <laughs> not the channel antenna, but, yeah, you know, not watching the aerial, cable. Watching yeah. it on, like, the old antenna on your and house. And there was some, I don't remember what station it was on, but there was a movie on called Lifeguard. Yeah. Have you ever seen this movie? No. It's from 1976, I think. And it stars Sam Elliott. M- a mustacheless or a <laughs> No, he's got, a, I, rec- I think he's got a mustache. Oh, then I can hopefully trust him. <laughs> I believe to my recollection, and the whole the plot line is, he's like a thirty two year old, uh, like California over the hill life, yeah, like <laughs> lifeguard, and he's old for being a lifeguard, and he goes to like a family, he goes to a high school reunion, runs into his high school sweetheart played by Ann Archer, Oof. and he starts to question, like, what am I doing with my life? Or can I be a lifeguard forever? Like I'm already kind of over the hill, and it is. Highly enjoyable, like a very weird movie. Like only, you know, we talked about uh, with Slapshot. We're talking about like there's just something about like that set mid to late 70s. Yeah. Like it could only be made then. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight other than the Ann Archers. Well, I've... <laughs> but like seeing Ann Archer... I'm sure she looks gorgeous yeah, in it Yeah, she's, she's gorgeous in it. Yeah. But it's just like I highly recommend you check out this movie because it is such a weird plot. There's this 15-year-old girl that's in love with him. It's just... It's a very... And he goes and tries to be a... He's trying to clean up his act. He goes and tries to be a, like a car salesman, but it's not the right fit for him. <laughs> 
<laughs> turns into used cars with, you with know, Russ it and seems Kurt, like uh, a, It seems like an absolutely ridiculous, like almost comedic plot. Like you could easily make a comedy out of this. Yeah. With like Will they Ferrell or something. But it's like it's completely earnest. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's so bizarre. I'm so glad I caught it. I never heard TV. of it. The, the earliest thing I've seen her in is there's a great Chuck Norris movie called Good Guys Wear Black. That's also got um, uh, an old Dana Andrews, Jim Backus, and then that Asian actor Soon Tech On, who played a lot of villains oh, in yeah, the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Who is a vil- He's the bad guy in Mission in Action Two. He runs the the yeah. camp, uh, and it's a it's a pretty uh, ridiculous Chuck Norris movie for the time. But it's, if you love Norris, it's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and she plays like a bit role in it, but it's the Norris movie that people famously saw where he. Does a like a jump kick and kicks through the windshield of a car. Uh-huh. That's this movie. Yeah, Good guys yeah. wear black, and she's super young, and it. it's 1978. So she must have been t- like putting her toes in. I'm sure she did a lot of episodic TV. Yeah, you know, and then she did the movie you just said, and then she did this movie. Good guys wear black, and then at the same time, 78, she jumps in this movie, and she goes on to do like uh, Patriot Games, which I absolutely love. Tom Clancy with. Harrison oh, yeah. Ford, I mean, she has by far, know. like, the most prolific career out of anybody yeah. in this movie. Aside from well, the guy we did last week, M- yeah. Emmett Walsh. This is part of our, this is part of our M. Emmett Walsh, Walsh double feature. <laughs> double feature. Because uh, he's in this movie, too. He, you know, he he, uh, he plays a sweet-ass role in this movie. And uh, Alec Guinness, who, was at the, who around the same time was in uh, Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, I guess. Star Wars 77. You know, he's doing this. And he, Empire. And, and they have Alec Guinness in this movie. He comes in, and he was someone who was still aboard in the Titanic. Even when I was five or six, when I'm watching this, I'm like, how old the fuck? How old is he supposed to be if he's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's playing we, a character that was aboard the Titanic. But we didn't prove real life that the story I just said with that Wilhelm Mueller, he was, uh, he died, he was he was 98 when he died, and he was alive in 88. Yeah, yeah. So it's very possible that there was someone possible old enough. possible there was someone old you know, enough, but, because he was, but realistically... Mueller was 17 when he was on the Titanic, he yeah. said. So yeah, realistically, it's unlikely. But realistically, Al Guinness, I think, was born like after. Yeah, nineteen fourteen. <laughs> yeah, you know? after the yeah, time. But, but he's playing. He's, he's, back he's, then, he's, he's old. He's old. He's an know? actor. Yeah. He's an actor. Let him act. So he. So we have the Dirk Pitt, the uh, Richard Jordan character, go talk to him about the Titanic when he remembers, and he's the one. And basically, what we end up doing is the further the plot. Al Guinness is just explains the first. Uh, chapter of the book. Yeah, he's the guy that gets the gun drawn on him. That's taken below, and then and then they keep hammering home the South. He's speed. taking some blow. He's taking some blow. <laughs> yeah. And then he takes and the then guy he gets below. Hijacked in yeah. the middle of it. Yeah, and he's like, what the hell? And then. Uh, and then he keeps furthering like the thank God for South Speed um, line to the movie, and, uh, and then he gives. Uh, Dirk Pitt a flag to put back up on the Titanic. I find that really nice. In the yeah, background, yeah. you see, I, I saw in this viewing, there's a an actual real picture of the old, the uh, off the North Sea there, uh, where they do all the fishing on the English's East Coast. They're very notorious, the, the fishermen and the National the National Guardsmen or whatever you call it, Life Coast Guard over there. Yeah. And there's a famous picture of a Coast Guard in the background with a, uh, a buoy around him, and it says Whitby. And I've been to Whitby, and that's the place where Dracula in the book makes landfall in England. With the mm-hmm. with the 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 demitas maybe the demeter yeah. demeter the ship yeah you know so it's very that's a big thing for the English seafaring coast well stuff. I mean it's an island yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so they got a lot going on there with that so we have Alec Guinness makes a cameo just to give us a little exposition about the Titanic was the greatest ship I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of a thing and and then it becomes a great MacGuffin in the movie is that. 
to get this byzanium at the bottom of the ship to stop nuclear war you know it's it's actually quite cool you know it's 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 like a, and then I, I, he has a really good line too alec Guinness. he says we all we all end up in a single bed eventually and it's like oh yeah, that's yeah. kind of sad and prophetic you know it's real yeah but um so that's the MacGuffin, which is like, how do we have how do we have a story involving the Titanic? We'll take there's something in the in the hole that we need to get, so we have to bring her up. And the biggest problem or the biggest technical inaccuracy, not by the uh, Custler or the filmmaker's fault, is that you know when they go down there, they assume the ship would still be intact. Yeah. And then we learn five years later in '85 when when Ballard finds it that it's not intact. Yeah, yeah. It broke off in two pieces. So, uh, and then I actually own Dave. They don't sell anything from the Titanic because Ballard was really into like this. This it's like Indiana Jones. This should be a museum. Then no one should. But then he was trying to get the rights to the ship so no other people can come. And like it's sad because it's. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot left because in in the travels he's gone. If you look at the videos. Stuff is is now um, decaying at a really really huge rate. Yeah, the, yeah. The stuff is um, eating away at the iron and the wood. And if you look at like like a lot of the stuff is actually gone now that was there in '85. That you know, and he put a plaque down in '85, and people have stolen the plaque twice on the bridge. You know, and it's like what the fuck? You know, why are you going down there and stealing stuff? So so people have been starting to take stuff off the ship. But there's a big thing like you shouldn't make money off of it. You should leave it alone. You shouldn't take tours down. Yeah, yeah. You should treat it like it's a graveyard, like much like the Oklahoma is out in um, Pearl Harbor. Um, is the Oklahoma or is the Arizona? The one that sank in Pearl Harbor. Oh. They, they put the museum. I think it's the Arizona, maybe? Maybe it's the Arizona. I don't know. You know, the... the um, Sorry if we don't know. We should know. You know we should know. It's, it's history. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the only thing that people have kind of been all right with, with parting with and they sell is coal. So between the two, the, the back end of the ship, the stern section, and between the the uh, the, the, the 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 front section, uh, and as well as the um, when, when the two things broke apart, all this coal that was in the ship just emptied out onto the ocean floor. And then you can follow the. I think they found when Ballard found first, he found a boiler, and then he just followed the debris field, and that's what you do. And yeah. then, then the the debris field will lead you to the ship as it was sinking. So I own a piece of coal that was actually on the ship, which is quite morbid. You know, yeah, but they were yeah. selling it when they did the Times Square exhibit in 2010, maybe or nine. It was going around that they had like uh, one thing you can buy from it was some coal, different size pieces. Yeah. So I bought a piece of coal. How much does a piece of coal go? I don't for? remember, but it was it was <laughs> kind of expensive because the one I have, I want to say, is probably about as. It's like a nugget, you know. It's probably like I don't know, like an inch by like an inch. Yeah. And yeah. I remember it was expensive because the next step up was something that was probably maybe you can keep in your hand, and they wanted like top dollar, and like it was a like, briquette. Yeah, and it was like I can't, I couldn't afford it because I, I, I went to town. I bought the third. They had a a, a um, identical third class blankets that they would that said White Star Line that they yeah, would sell. Yeah. I I grabbed that. They had like a poster, like a it's long. Left to right of like the actual uh, like the architectural what it looks like like you know on a, on a blueprint like a schematic yeah I brought I bought that I was because it's like when are you gonna see this stuff again you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. so I bought a lot of stuff in a piece of coal you know and you get like a little little shitty piece of paper that's like this is an authentic piece of you know who's <laughs> saying lump, it we're saying it a lump of coal <laughs> a lump of coal you actually bought yourself a lump of coal so um, this movie turns into like a spy thriller of the time like like a Clancy s kind of like a 
Um, at the time, you had like the the the, uh, the Iker sanction. You had Firefox, which was very popular. Eastwood movie of '82, where he's got to go get like a stealth bomber plane out of Russia. You know, mm-hmm. you have these uh, kind of espionage ex stories that deal with Russia. I mean, you had a lot of stuff in the '70s too, like the Odessa file, or sure. like you know the ones that took place with surviving Nazis. Remember those? That yeah, you know, yeah. like you have the, the boys from Brazil. Like I love all that shit where there's you know <laughs> yeah, Nazis yeah. doing stuff, Nazis living in your own backyard, the man in the glass booth, written by Robert Shaw. But you have the other thing was aside from the bond with Spectre, you had the actual like you know Cold War espionage stuff. You know. Yeah. So uh, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, Rocky <clears throat> didn't end the Cold War until a couple years later when yeah, he fought Drago. <laughs> or you actually had the, the the Russian audience cheering on the Americans at the end of that in that last round. It was amazing. So this movie ends up coming out, and you know, for me, little like I loved it. It was like such a part of my growing up. Like I followed it. Even watching it now, I didn't find it boring. Like a lot of like the criticism online that it's slow and it's it's clunky, and I I was right into it. I was. I mean. What I did notice a lot on this viewing is some of the problems with the miniatures. Yeah. You know, like when, when some of that isn't shot well underwater, I don't think it looks good at all. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there's, but, but there's some scenes like when they raise the Titanic, like they said in the, um, in the actual preview audiences, like people cheered and clapped when they actually got to that scene uh, for the test audiences. And I think that looks gorgeous. And there's like a real beautiful shot over the top left side of it. Uh, that's above a bird's eye view looking down when it's coming out of the water and it's kind of like the water's coming off and I think it looks like very realistic. I do think the effects are really impressive. You know, but it's hard because there are certain scenes where it doesn't look as good. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I remember like when I was little they must have got GE to do product placement because I remember like that's probably for me the first time I noticed product placement in a movie because you have the GE logo all over like the robotic arms. <laughs> yeah, You yeah. know, and it's like, what the hell is that? And I looked it up and it was like, I, I Googled it back in 82, you know. <laughs> me, me, it's like, we went to the library. Yeah, I went to the library and I was like, <laughs> I went to the, through the, the, the card catalogs. Fee. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the, the card catalog system and like that kind of a thing. Um, but like, you know, I was all into it and all that kind of a thing. And like, I remember when I was little, like you have uh, uh, M. Emmett Walsh He's in it, and uh, it's funny when, when they get to like the sub crews, they have a lot of like it sounds like just voice out voiceover actors. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like a lot of people who you know from like voiceover work. You're like, hey, good buddy. <laughs> you know, it's like it sounds too good the yeah. voice actors. But uh, you, you know, know if this is true, I mean, I didn't read the book, <clears throat> so but there was word. Uh, there's reports that the M. Emmett Walsh character was originally supposed to be a character. Yeah, he plays it. Um, you have in in Sandecker, who is Jason Robart's character. He's a, a Admiral Sandecker. He heads the uh, Numa Foundation that Dirk Pitt works for. Yeah, and he shows up in a series of the Dirk Pitt novels. And so does this guy Giordano. Giordano. Yeah, Al Gio, G, Giordino. Giordino. He's another guy that's like Dirk Pitt's friend who shows up in a yeah. lot of it's like novels. Sidekicky. Yeah, kind of he's like what the. I read. Um, remember the American and the oh, I forget his name escapes me from the James Bond movies. Oh yeah, yeah. You know yeah, that guy yeah. who always shows up and it's played by like uh, you know uh, Joe Don Baker or whatever you know. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, but they for some reason they changed his name, but they said that in some of the early promotion he. For like the, for like the lobby cards, he is credited as that character, but then they ended up changing it. There's a version where he gets like killed, and so they kind of changed. Yeah, that. there was a version of the script where they killed him off. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, like all that 
underwater stuff like when i was little i was i ate all that right up yeah, like yeah. the intrigue and like you know biting your fingers and like you know, your 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 fingernails and the the whole part with the that and it to me it seems so quick now like the pacing but that's the thing i'm starting to find with all movies from back in the day that i'm revisiting that like i always remember them being much more uh developed than they need to be maybe because it's my own you know, you look yeah, at movies yeah. now, in movies, it seems like movies need to be more nuanced nowadays because audi- audiences, uh, intelligence, or their, their, uh, they know the craft so well, you, you can't pull the same, play the same games anymore. Yeah. So a lot of times when I go back and look at movies from like the 70s, 80s, I'm like, that's all? That was it? You know? Like, <laughs> you know? So when this movie, yeah, it's that's like, what I was saying. Like, yeah, it's, like, it's be- so quick. At the beginning, like so much of this, of the book got gutted that like, this is the, like, this is it. This is One, the two, plot. three, four, you know? Um, so it's funny that like, you know, they right when they get down there, you know, they, they right off the bat have that problem with the ship. And that's real freaky back then because that wasn't, you don't really explore the implosions of going too far deep until you get to like the abyss. You yeah. know? And there's a lot of similarities, which is interesting between Cameron's abyss and this movie because you have, you know, the scenes of deep water stuff at the end of the abyss. Remember, they raise the alien world comes up the ship or whatever it is. You have coffee, Michael Bean's character imploding in a sub. Yeah, you have yeah. submersibles, you know, that were all used. So, you know, um, it, you do see the similarities. But like, you know, when, when you see them implode and I thought that was a really great effect. Because they, they had to have had a model. I don't think they killed those real people. In that. <laughs> you don't think so? No, not this time around. But I thought it was really impressive to get a model to implode. I don't know how you do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, and realistically, I mean, I'm sure there's a way they figured it out, you know. But uh, it just became so, I guess, the, the, the cost overruns of being able to have a like a 55-foot, like I forget how much ton uh, life-size version of this thing in Malta, which is it's next to where the next year they ended up shooting the town for uh, Popeye, the uh-huh. live action Popeye, which nowadays you can actually still go to because it's all still there. It's like a tourist attraction. Yeah. You can go to that Popeye seaside town. And uh, right next to it uh, in Malta is where they had this tank. And sadly, the they said that the um, this ship that they used, uh, 10 ton, 50 feet, 15 meters long, this damn thing, that once they were done with it, they didn't do anything with it. They just left it at the side of the tank and it sat there for 20 or 30 years rotting and then there was a like a hurricane of some sort in the early 2000s and it destroyed the thing and it's still there if you go to Malta and look yeah but it's like it's like the Titanic in real life it's beyond repair which I think would be cool if somebody could take it and put it in a museum and fix it up you know what I mean yeah yeah uh, but like for me all this stuff when I was little like the parts when they're, you know they have like a scale model at a press conference you know they're showing you and they're, they're like of course we're gonna lift it we're gonna fill it with freaking you know uh, mothballs and you know ping pong balls and like you know like these are like real ideas at the time people used to think of, like what can yeah. we fill with ping pong balls well really because there was like people were actually thinking like can we raise the Titanic can we do all this kind of a thing and I think now in the 20th century when you still you get the technology to go down there and visit these sites, you realize how much of a, uh, you know, unpractical it is. Impractical to be able to, like, physically lift a rotting ship. I mean, you could do it to a certain extent. I mean, they make a reference, they say in the script here, about a sub. They said, we did it with that sub a couple years ago. And then that scene's alluding to that they there was a Russian sub that sank in the 70s that it was highly classified, that they never officially released the official story that, it's rumored that they think our governor went and grabbed the sub and yeah. you know took it to get the technology, but then it fell apart as it was sing- uh, coming up. My favorite you know, part of the movie is when they go down and one of the first like artifacts they find is that like bugle. 
And they don't know what it is. And then they take it back and they fucking spit shine the crap. <laughs> it's like brand spinning. Well, you know, when you watch the, 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 the these Titanic documentaries, you see the stuff they take out from a. It's because it, there's this whole process they have to do where whatever you take out of the water, you can't expose it to. It, it's almost like it needs a cooling period where they have to keep it in salt water because once it hits fresh air. Yeah. It'll completely destroy whatever it is. So they have to like immediately put it into some other water solution. And depending on if it's paper or if it's leather or... And that's another sad thing with the Titanic. Um, I think people know this by now that like the only thing that really survived down there that deep... The ship was surprisingly intact, they think, in 1985 because it's so far down that, that you know, the organisms, which they address in the book and the movie, that it's so far down. There's not a lot of oxygen down there. So that... Talk about in this movie. Yeah, in this movie. And in the book, which ended up being in real life, that the organism, there's not a lot of organisms down there that can feed off of stuff, but they didn't realize that there's like biological stuff that actually eats iron. So that you, when you look at the first photos, it looks like these waterfalls of frozen iron, this gold look because it's these, these kind of like crustaceans built on it that are eat, feeding on the wood and the, uh, yeah. the thing, but you don't realize how good condition the, the ship is in, you know? So a lot of this stuff, like they find, on all these expeditions are like these leather shoes. And what they, they, they were realizing, we're finding a lot of shoes just laid about. And what they realized, those were the, where the bodies landed. And that's oh, the I only see, thing that's yeah. left because the, the sea is eating everything except the leather. So when you see these, you know, shoes laid about, that's where a body was at one time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it wasn't it, just like shoes fell down. Yeah, it, it was, was like a, there was a body in there the There was a foot in that <clears throat> shoe. You know, and that, that was that some, you know, some microorganism or whatever over 80 years is completely destroyed that, you know, eats the wood. And, you know, yet they find, and another thing, getting back to that Mueller story was when they went down there, they they found the, the rockets that they sent, they shoot up. And on the tips of all the rockets, they're hollowed out and there's a color painted so they know what color you're shooting up and they found blue red green they didn't find any white rockets yeah that was still down there but there's a lot of stuff in amazing condition like you know there's champagne bottles still down there there's actual since it was the main voyage there's like uh you'd think that the pressure would burst a bottle i, I you would think yeah I guess but i guess it's maybe because of how it's designed or whatever yeah. you know they found like um uh plates that, are, that were perfectly stacked in you know wooden uh boxes that the wood has now been eaten away so now all you have left are these perfectly fanned out you know and i think yeah. they're bringing that stuff up to put in the museums like white star line all this stuff yeah, that's, you yeah. know with the cups the tea sets and stuff like that so um it's surprisingly good condition but after we it's we're lucky we found it in 85 because now it's if you look at if you f do research now it's it's really in like in the next 10 or 15 years they worry the ship's going to kind of like fall apart onto itself yeah i wonder if any of that has to do with like global warming and stuff maybe yeah they like were saying that the, the move uh, in raise the titanic part you know one of the reasons the depth but also the the temperature yeah if it's so cold temperature rise there. rises a little bit you get you know or you know yeah different kind of crustaceans or whatever or at a certain tipping point you know we never really had ships that prior to like you know the, the 1800s you didn't have like iron built ships they were yeah. all like wood so you never really saw like they talk about i think it's the either the black sea or the dead sea um because it's there's such a high salt content jim cameron did a documentary a couple of years ago on this which was fascinating because he does all this maritime stuff now where they can find like uh like viking vessels wooden vessels completely almost untouched because there's so much there's no uh, nothing can live in the the highly yeah. salted. It's so such a high salt content. There's nothing down there that will feed upon and rot out these yeah, ships, yeah. so that you can go down there and you can find, 
you know, um, pretty good artifacts that when you take up and clean, they look really good. Well, before for, you know, kids these days, they don't know this because now IMAX theater just shows like an IMAX version of whatever movies. And you're lucky if it's a true IMAX. (laughs) But back in our day, IMAX, before that, IMAX was making, you know, specifically for IMAX movies. And the only way you could really afford to do that because the IMAX... Uh, film stock and everything was so is crazy. It's expensive. It's expensive. It's so big. It's like a size of an index car. Yeah. If you think about uh, a film frame. Yeah, like a ray. If you got, you don't. People don't even know this now, but when you used to go take like your <laughs> your still camera film to the to the place to get developed, you'd get your pictures, then you'd get the negative. You have to wait a couple weeks sometimes. <laughs> then the thing was like one hour developing. But you remember, like maybe your dad or something would take, and then you'd have like the negatives in there, and that's the you'd size. You have the prints, and then you have the negatives that you can do what you want. You can take yeah, the negatives. But that's large. the size of a thirty-five millimeter film print. So yeah. that's uh, yeah, that's what movies are shot on nowadays. Thirty-five, the yeah, norm. Well, now it's probably mostly digital, but yeah, uh, you know the uh, the size of a one frame of like an IMAX piece of film was like literally the size of like an index card or something yeah, it was huge, huge uh to pr- be able to project it on is the that screen that big. i think it's even bigger than that okay and um because they, they they got into a big thing remember they were shooting action sequences in 70 they did yeah, like the yeah transformers they did the dark knight in 70 to make it so it would fit on an imax but uh so the only the way you could really fund these films like you couldn't really shoot a feature length film in that so the only way they could do it is if you got like grants and stuff so a lot of these things became documentaries in the IMAX theater and at some point when we were in college it was after he had Cameron had gone down and they made the movie the Titanic there was this great docu like Ghost of the Abyss yeah yeah it came out and, and it's uh it's like Bill Paxton is the um the late Bill Paxton the late Bill Paxton sadly he's the guy that um kind of is our on uh, he he's plays like us. kind of the host narrator, yeah, but because he was connected to the movie, the Titanic movie, and, and he's he, friends with Cameron, and he's furthering the um, Cameron's doing was doing so much more stuff with the uh, with the Titanic going down that they filmed all this other because I think at the beginning of the movie that's all actual footage in the Titanic. Yeah, you know they have the um, jokingly in the movie they have what is it uh, L Jake and Elwood the two robots, but in the original it was a one called Alvin. And Alvin was a submersible that would it would go it would like just in the movie it would come out and come out of its it had like a little shoebox it would come out of and yeah, it was yeah. tethered and it would go around and look at stuff and go into the ship, you know. But Cameron's been a huge pioneer. Cameron did that movie, which is beautiful because which you can it's available. Ghosts of uh, Ghosts of the the Abyss. Yeah, but we saw you. I think we did we I, see it together. I don't know if I saw it in theaters. I might have. Because I remember I saw it at the IMAX. It was it's, really cool. It's, it's like really emotional because how he did stuff, he would take like a, a period photo and he would find out where it was done on the ship or and or then or he would reenact stuff on maybe the same sets he did the Titanic. Yeah. And then he would do like a dissolve. So and you can see what it looks like now, now and it would, it would be, become so like fright. Like I'm getting goosebumps because then it yeah. would look like it's like a, like the people would fade away or whatever. It'd be really go. And that's what I like about the beginning of this movie. Over that beautiful, lush John Barry opening, you have real footage, uh, real photos at the time of the ship getting built, the size, the people, and all the because the uh, the Titanic when it left Southampton on this maiden voyage, it stopped at Queensland to pick up some stuff, and uh, there is a 
a priest who was on board who only went as far as Queensland and he got off. So there are there his role of film that he shot are the only roles of film that survived of him like on board. There's a picture of like a kid playing like hopscotch. So yeah. if you look at if you're really well versed in the Jim Cameron Titanic movie, uh, Cameron throws some of that like little those there Easter those eggs. You'll see like there. a kid playing and the guy taking a picture and it's the priest, you know. And then when he was disembarking off the game plank, the priest, he looked up and snapped the picture and it's the last shot you can see E. J. Smith looking out of the bridge looking down and it's very haunting it's like the last photo of him looking you know with the big white beard yeah, yeah. You know, and then there's the last fo- you see the ship the titanic going off and there's you know there's pictures of that on the irish coast or wherever it was yeah you know and uh so that's a great movie goes to the abyss and then jim cameron went on to do the he did a, a tv documentary where they found the bismarck because they couldn't find the Bismarck, the big German ship, which is too long to get into, but that's another fascinating Nazi yeah, yeah. ship to go into at the time. And then most recently, he did something where there was this big thing where he went into like the, uh, the was it the Varianna Strait? You know, the big... Oh, the, yeah, yeah. There's a big crevice in the... It's the deepest part of the, of the world. It's yeah. the deepest and, point and, in the ocean. In the ocean, it's this big crevice. Mariana Trench, yeah. maybe? Something like that. And Cameron himself in a specially designed submersible that actually looks like an early version of like the like the like how the scuba divers used to go in with like the... the you know, it looks all like a robot. Yeah, Like yeah. a Robbie the robot. He's in one of them. He went himself, went down... And I think he may have went down the deepest. And he did it. He shot all 35 and he turned it into a documentary that I think has come out that was like on National Geographic. Again, he got grant money from National Geographic and all this. And a lot of times, this is the people that end up, you know, getting stuff done as you get big grants from National Geographic or the government and all that kind of a thing. That's how we got the Titanic was found. Yeah. You know, so they end up um, getting the, um, the FX guys that did Moonraker. And they come across, they build the, 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 the 50-foot uh, Titanic, and they, they use the actual specs from the actual sh- thing to, to, to make it look good. They find a convert, they, they search the world, and they to find a ship that they can actually shoot the practical scenes of the people walking around on the ship once it's surfaced. And they find a ship in Athens that's going to be um, gutted called the USS, uh, the, I'm sorry, the SS Antini, Antini or something, Antinthian, Antinthian. T H I N A I. It's not relevant, but um, you know, for people who want to know, and it was about to get scrapped, and they found that, so they converted the whole fucker to, and then to, for in the areas of the ship that they were going to shoot in, what they did was they just put dams up in front of the bulkhead doors and filled it with all with ocean water and let it sit there for a couple of days, and then they just emptied it all, and that's when they they filmed it all. So, but you, you have this intrigue where they they uh, in the movie. Uh, so I think I, I don't know if I I followed through with my point before about Ann Archer. I think I maybe we took an Ann Archer departure. <laughs> there, did, was, yeah. there was a subplot that they let go of that wasn't that's in the book that's not in the movie of this guy Seagram whose project the Sicilian project this is. He's going through the uh, Alan Alda yeah, yeah the Alan Alda lookalike. <laughs> it would have been great this, uh, to have Alan Alda in this movie, you know, but he, he probably couldn't do it because he was doing Mash at the time. Uh, He's having all this marital problems with his wife, and, he's, and they're on the rocks, and he's trying to work his relationship out. Love meeting. on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Love on the rocks. Ain't no big surprise. You know, he's, he's meeting her at park benches in D.C., trying to talk to her, and it's not going well. And then when Dirk Pitt comes in the scene, we come to find out that she like, I lived with him for two years. He's like, I loved him, and I don't know why I let go of him. Yeah, I was that's, stupid. And that's... That, that's tough when she says that. Yeah. It's the stupidest thing in my life. It's like, what did you just say? <laughs> what? Oh, what? So, um, how dare you say something? How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? Uh, 
Damn, you say that, bitch. <laughs> you, say, you know how many, like, uh, that's, you know, a, that's a hell of a thing for you to say yeah, to me. <laughs> damn it. I don't give a damn. So there's that whole subplot that they lose because ultimately, ones, ultimately what ends up happening is that his character can't take the strain of what ends up happening in the book of he loses the marriage, falls apart, the strain of the Russians finding this thing, them raising the Titanic, that, that he never doesn't recover. And he, I don't know if he dies or he just goes insane, but this it's really sad that... In the um, book. In the book, the Seagram yeah. character, the, guy, the Alan Alda look-alike. Um, yeah, the way the movie ends, like, you know, uh, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's freaking Claude Rains and uh, Hovey Bogart walking away after he's shot Conrad Veidt. And he's like, you know, oh, yeah, later, you know this is uh, what dreams are made out of, uh, baby. <laughs> So, um, but they do keep the big twist at the end, which is in the book, which I absolutely love. That I don't. I wonder if audience. Yeah, at the but time, spoiler alert. Yeah. What happens is they raise this baby. Yeah. They open her up. Open up the. They the, open up the vault. Yeah. They find. They go down. They're able to find the vault. They get down there, and thank God it would have been hilarious that if they raised the fucker. And then the vault had fallen out. <laughs> and then I had to go down and get the vault again. You know, but that would have been even harder. Find the vault because the vault's only, you know, you think of how big a, a vault is. Yeah. Find the vault. Find, raise the vault. Hey, so they it. open this vault up. The guy. Spoiler that, alert if you don't want to, you know, you should stop now if you don't want to, you know, go watch the movie. And we'll give you three seconds. Yeah. Three, two, one. <laughs> the time is now three o'clock. They open up the vault. The the, the the dead guy's in there. The guy who locked himself in. Locked him in. Locked himself in with the byzanium, and uh, there's all these crates. As they they open up all the crates, and they got the Geiger counter out there. They want to love that with the Geiger counter because you know they were using the Geiger counter before. It's like it's going off the roof, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's then, great device a Geiger counter. <laughs> yeah, and then they open up the thing, and nothing's happening. They're like whacking the, th- the, the thing. To, yeah, they, they, they take the batteries out. They lick up the. <laughs> They lick the batteries. <laughs> Rubbing it on their sweater to try to get some static yeah, charge. Try to, the anybody have any more batteries? What are they, D's? Oh, who carries D's with Because there's nothing happening with the Geiger counter. Geiger, yeah, the needle ain't even moving. They're like, what the fuck? And they, then like they open up all the boxes and it's just gravel. And they're like, fuck, it's gravel. And then I think it occurs to them what it means, Southsby. What they've been saying the whole movie is thank God for Southsby. And then that was what the Alec Guinness character said the guy was muttering as he was hugging the vault. Thanks God for Southsby. So they go to the, um, they find an English. Yeah, well, Dirk uh, Pitt, they're looking at the, the doctor and, and Dirk are sitting there and he's finds like a postcard. Yeah, Jason Robarts is like, fuck, what do we do now? And, uh, oh, yeah, they're right. They find a postcard on the body that's perfectly preserved. And, it's, and, it, and they look at the postcard and they look at the bottom and it's shot in Southby, England is the photo. So they go to this little seaside community. That's like, you know, right on the, one of the coast cities. And um, they go to this little cemetery and they find, uh, you know, like I said earlier, that this this crew that was like running from this French hitman to try to get the Byzantium because they want to write salvage rights to it. They were everybody kept dying in different installments in different cities. So the last person to survive before the last guy got off was killed. They buried him in Southby, England. So they found his grave and they bring the Geiger counter. And the guy you're kind of going through the roof. And I, this is, for some reason, another weird idiosyncrasy with, with me is all my life I get stuff stuck in my head that I don't remember where. And all my life I always remember, don't you want us to dig it up? <laughs> these yeah, guys yeah. like, don't you want us to dig it up? And they get these two um, grave diggers to come. And I think in the movie they don't dig it up, right? No, they don't. But in the book they do. The book they're like, it's a, it's a, this is, you know, this is what dreams are made of. Well, the whole thing is, uh, you know, there's a whole thing where 
the moral dilemma of the Byzantium gets introduced at the end of the movie instead of the beginning. Yeah, which they is realize, like, yeah, we're going to use it for missile defense, but you could easily make a bomb yeah, like eight million times more, <laughs> you know, powerful than the hydrant than the than like the atom bomb. Uh, so maybe it's bad. Maybe it's good that we didn't find it. Yeah, they. they, they it's almost like Frankenstein. Because I'm not saying, but you know, I'm not, not saying we were going to use it for. But somewhere, some town, some guy, there's a think tank, and somebody's trying to figure out how to make a bomb out of this shit. Yeah, and they they realize that it becomes. Uh, you know, it publicly is declared. It's it's in the book. It's awesome. Like you know, they they come into the New York Harbor. It's great. You know, we see that in the movie. They shot it at the seventy sixth centennial. They took footage from the centennial uh, that we we've brought up before because of the we always talk about this. <laughs> we always talk about <laughs> the seventy sixth centennial. It's a big thing. And the, the and the, yeah, and the, and the Statue of Liberty at Rocky. the time. Rocky. And um, and I may have incorrectly said that I thought blow up takes place during the, a blowout takes place during the centennial. It's not the centennial. I don't know because the movie is actually like comes out like eighty eighty one. I mean, it might have taken place during the centennial. Well, I didn't know that then. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember uh, what the heck was it. But but they used the footage of the centennial and they just um, c- composited the Titanic in coming through. And it's really silly because at one point you see it going under the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, and I'm like, why the hell would it be going under the Brooklyn Bridge the way it's going? It's going up the East River to the side, so it must be going up the east side. But originally, you know, you think of all the shipfaring lanes. It's on the Hudson, which is on the west side. Yeah, yeah, that's where all the ships come in. You know, you have the joke in Ghostbusters Two, where like, you know, I think it's like Cheech and Chong, or like, better late than never, where the, you know, the <laughs> yeah, Titanic yeah. finally arrives. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe I wonder if they did a Ghostbusters episode, a real Ghostbusters of the type. I guess I would have known that if they did a real Ghostbusters I episode think, of the Titanic. I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Um, but you know, then Dirk Pitt gets off and he gets into a cab. It's great. It's all aw- he, he's like the awesomest character in the world, and he goes off. And then they find this little thing where they realize that it's you know it's in this little uh, seaside town. And that's what you said in the movie. They have this last-minute thought. Him and uh, Dirk Pitt, Richard Jordan, and Jason Robards look at each other and they're like, wait a minute. Maybe this is a good thing we just leave it here and we don't dig it up because for everyone thinks that it, it's been lost to time. You know, who else is going to ever find this again? Yeah. Instead, you know? we're just giving cancer to this entire town. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, this whole town is going to be dead. You know, that's why nothing the radioactive lives. material yeah. buried in the soil. Yeah, they, and they think it's like, uh, you know, like some church pagan curse because nothing lives around it. But it's no, they just put some byzanium in here. And We've just buried in byzanium into the soil. You know? uh, yeah, and, and uh, I love the twist. And like I said, I didn't find any of it. You know, like slow or the twist that it, the twist that it's not in there. Yeah. What twist are you talking about? Like the the twist that it's not. Well, yeah, the twist that it's not in there. Like I loved all that. I never found it anticlimactic. Or you figure once you get the Titanic up, you could have did more with it. They just have like this silly standoff with the Russians to just like you know rub their nose at them, and the Russians come like, which is funny, like in a American Huey. Land yeah, there's this whole other thing you know? going on where we're keep, keep on cutting back to the Russians because the Russians they're leaking are, information to yeah, the Archer character. Yeah, they want to they want to be able to get the Russians involved because in the book there's a Russian agent they want to try to draw out. So in real life, and this is what pisses the the president, you know, and this is another thing that makes Seagram go crazy in the book because the president himself signs off on them releasing the thing to leak so that the Russians know. And that really does Seagram's another thing. He's like, I'm doing this for the fucking country and you're leaking to the Russians that potentially could, this could blow up in our faces literally. And, you know, yeah, that's another thing that makes them go crazy. But yeah, in the movie, they want to leak it. I forget why, but then they, they don't, in the movie, it's just the Russians do it. 
Because the Russians want to see what they're up to, I think. So the Russians leak it to Ann Archer to have it, them come out in their... And it ends up just being more pressure on the relationship. Yeah, the two I think like, that's really the device. Because yeah, then she, they have a fight. Wise. Yeah, they have He's a like, fight. Don't you, think, don't you realize everybody's going to think, I gave you this information? And she's like, oh, I didn't think of that. And, she, and she's like, what do you know about Dick Pitt? I loved him. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, yeah, Ann Archer. I was like, you bitch. You, oh, just because you're in Archer doesn't mean you can get away with this sort of thing. Uh, and then you have this. Then you have the point of the Russian. It's the classic Russians are like you know twenty feet away, and they're both looking. Hey, what what you doing over there? <laughs> it's got right? like every even like one of the guys who's not even a Russian. He ends up being a Russian in Rocky Four. You know, one of the guys in the submersibles <laughs> working with Dirk. Yeah, he ends up playing a Russian. But then you know all the Russian guys has that one guy who's a Russian in every fucking yeah. even in the Spider Man movies as Peter Parker's landlord as the Russian. And he's landlord. also in the uh, in the eighties. Remember, he had some sort of weird Saturday morning character where he's like, I. Uh, Igor, and that's what I say. And you remember, like he was like Igor. It was something weird where he had like a Saturday morning, like yeah, maybe. But he was that guy. But yeah, he's a Russian in every movie. And what I said before with the Mueller story comes into play, where the Russians they have to leave because there's a distress call, and then the Russians like, "We'll take you under salvage, but then it'll be our boat." Yeah, yeah, with a Russian accent. <laughs> not like Charlton Heston. Yeah, not like Charlton. <laughs> Everything is Charlton Heston. We'll take you in the toe, but it'll be out of boot. But um, but I never found it all like slow or whatever. The only thing I really, f- I think if you read the book, there's so much more in the book yeah, that they yeah. could have did that they didn't do. And then um, it, it's, it is kind of like, oh, you know, the Titanic comes up and that's it. It's like we're just going to come in. And it's more of the, it's, I guess they center the movie around the grandeur of raising the Titanic. And the only fault I had was some of the underwater miniature stuff. At certain points, I didn't think looked good. Yeah, like right yeah. after you see the, the the title car raise the Titanic, they cut to the Titanic underwater, and I think that looked horrible. Yeah, it looked yeah. like it was in somebody's pool. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, it, and it's like going yeah. over the front into the. But bridge. a lot of what we were talking about with how they really did it, you, you know, is represented like how the plan of trying to find it, the grid system. They explain all that, how they find it, and this movie is how Ballard found it kind of in real life you're talking about uh cameron doing all these tests with models to see how it sank and why it sank the way it did that's represented all in this movie. that's in this movie and they, it's great too because in this movie they show they give the audience an, an understanding of like they're like uh you know one of the we, we they they go they have it go down with all the four smokestacks but they forget this, that one of the smokestacks did fall eyewitness accounts so once they take that off the model it yeah. lands in a completely different yeah area. like how is that going to affect where it yeah. ends up landing and that's, that's fascinating that that you know you have to take every every single thing into account and then um you know a lot of this they, they go through the steps i love the like the, the computer simulations in real time you keep having it get update you know you see it updating and it's drawing and then because like, i was like you know that's also for me nail biting we're like move damn you move you're waiting for it to come off and yeah, yeah and that sound that the titanic makes is so scary to me it sounds to me like a they put like almost like the uh the real like cliched uh, uh king kong roar in it yeah, yeah, you know, like at the end of um, Duel, when the truck goes off and there's like a roar. Yeah, the, you yeah. know, I I feel like you kind of hear that. I think there's even one in like Jaws while the roar, you know. <laughs> while like the tail and stuff are you know sinking to the bottom at the end of Jaws when it's blown. Oh up. yeah, and it's like, <laughs> but there is like some kind of like animal moan. Yeah, and I felt like when the there. ship was flying up, you you had like a moan of it all. But I find all that eerie. And then like in the movie, the Titanic, uh, James Cameron, James Cameron's movie. When they're under deck and the power starts to fade and you start hearing all that, the creaking, it's just that, it's, I find that very eerie and frightening yeah. to me. Um, 
So the movie ends up coming out in 1980, and then it ends up flopping, sadly, because, you know, everybody's past, like I said, The Swarm, Meteor, Beyond, Poseidon, those movies all tanked. And this movie is like one of the last, they're still trying to do a disaster-ish, although it's not really a disaster. It's not really a disaster, but it's definitely kind of like something ton- tonally in that vein. Yeah. But you do see a lot of the 80s espionage movies coming into play where you get into, like I said, with Firefox in 82. Yeah. And then you see like, again, with the Tom Clancy, like with like, I guess the Russia house, which isn't Tom Clancy, but Patriot Games, you see where that's 80s. Yeah. You know, Cold War espionage with Rocky Four when he saves the world. <laughs> and you see that going. You see, you know. So, like you said, that it ends up costing... Raw deal. 40 well, mil- what's raw the red, red heat? Red heat. Red heat. <laughs> Not dead heat. Red heat. Red heat's what I'm and, thinking yeah, of. Raw deal's him with the mob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking. And, you got him mixed up there for a Jack second. Jack Palance in there, you know. Uh, so, it, it ends up coming out in um, in August the 1st, 1980, and it only does $7 million in the box office, and it kind of tanks... The, the producer on it, this guy who kind of got the thing started, uh, I think his name is Lou, Lou Grade. He famously remarked afterward that it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic to actually film at the irregular Titanics. And he uh, and his his brother, who who I think his na- his brother's name is like Lord Grade, uh, is the guy who ended up in the rival company putting out the SOS Titanic movie. So they were like fighting each other. So huh. Lou ends up. Doing this movie, this bombs, and then uh, ITC Entertainment en- ends up going under, and he does something else that bombs too. And he actually he be- becomes so disenchanted with the whole movie industry, he leaves. He stops becoming a producer because he doesn't like the whole process of. I mean, what we've actually been spelling out in our podcast is just how such a horrible world Hollywood is, and trying to get like a you know your baby out can be. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, if it's done wrong or like jackals come in and just take a piece of it. Um, there was a before the movie came out though there was a comic strip version of the book that was done for Sunday mornings it came out in 1977 and by a really noted um, uh, illustrator Frank uh, what would you say that last name is I would say <laughs> b- b- ball ball right B O L L E yeah he's a really noted illustrator uh, of Sunday morning comics and, and, and as an illustrator that's funny because you sent that you know you sent me a link to look at those and I, was, I read them. Uh, you know, and I thought they were all of them, and there's only eight panels there. But then evidently there was 56 strips with 192 panels, so that it ran between October the 9th, 1977, and uh, I'm sorry, August the 15th, 1977, and it ran till October the 9th, 1977. Yeah, yeah. In the Sunday papers, but there was a piece of me that was like, man, I would have loved to have seen this movie. <laughs> but that's the so that yeah, that's the that is faithful to the book. Yeah. So if you will put a link to these, the, the ones that are served because I guess not all of them are surviving, which I don't. That's another story. There is a raise the Titanic website we'll link to that has all this nuanced information, and they go into the to the newspaper comic strips that that were that were done, and I guess they lost a lot of the originals because people didn't think to save them back then. So the only place they're hoping, and also they said that like I don't know why, but maybe they weren't keeping original newspapers. Maybe on microfilm they were, but I don't know. Yeah, I you don't would think know. you'd be able to go back because we used to be able to go back and look at stuff. Like I remember going to the New Haven Library when I was little, going to the 1912 New York Times, finding the New York Times newspaper articles, and then printing all that out and having these long pieces of white paper of like the New York <laughs> Times. You know, Dan, yeah. what are you doing what with you all doing? these papers? <laughs> What, what ship dot you know what is this and then like uh then i got it years later um as a christmas present i got like for, through hamakla schlemmer you can get like a hard cover 
book, huge book of the entire run of the New York Times covering the Titanic disaster. Like mm. everything, you know, it's a fucking, it's like, a, it looks like the Ten Commandments, a slab, these books. Yeah. You know what I mean? It has every article, like, as it was, you know, printed out or whatever. And I think like, you could do that for your year, too, the year you were born. Maybe mm-hmm. they, they'll do that, too, the New York Times. Huh. So, but the co- the comic strips came out, you know, there were color panels and stuff. There was 56 strips, 192 panels. And it's awesome because it's right off the book, the Custler book. So, um, yeah, winding down. <sighs> this was a this was a doozy because of the uh, 105th uh, anniversary. Yeah, we weren't doing the podcast for the 100th, so. Yeah, and 12. But you know what I did do, which is very morbid, for the 100th anniversary, my wife and I made her do this shit, was that we went to see on April 15th we caught the latest show possible on the night because the the ship hits the iceberg at 11:40 goes down at like 2 in the morning yeah so we caught like a 12 o'clock showing of the movie on the 100th anniversary cuz that was of when this movie of Jim Cameron's Titanic cuz yeah. they put it into theaters in 2012 for like a limited theatrical run for the 100th anniversary yeah yeah so we went and saw the movie like on April fifteenth, so as sinking it was, as it's yeah, in real time. It was it was it was like a hundred years ago. This was actually happening, you know. And that's really you think about like how bizarre that is. That in a hundred years, someone could do that to nine eleven. Someone can go see like a, a dramatization of nine eleven and be like, I'm going to go see it at nine in the morning, so that it's really happening at the time. You know, yeah, yeah. so it's you know because now we look at it like it's like fanfare or you no. Know, but at the time, this was such an epic disaster because it was. Like it, it marked the end of the industrial revolution. It kind of showed the world that no, you can't go against God and Mother Nature. You can't, you know, you know. There's a lot more. You, you know, you shouldn't yeah. get ahead of yourself calling something unsinkable. You know, it's you know, it's <clears throat> almost as tragic as calling uh, Remo Williams the adventure begins. <laughs> yeah, because you know what, <laughs> the adventure didn't. It didn't. It, didn't, it might have began, but it never continued. Yeah. I mean, those are two different, really extreme examples, but. <laughs> Of, you know, people lo- lost. And I think the last person to die died a couple of years ago who was a toddler on the ship at the time. And she was like, I was I wouldn't say she was living poor, but I think uh, the story is Leonardo DiCaprio and Jim Cameron were paying for her to live in a like a proper um, convalescent home in, in England up yeah. until her death. And it was, what's really cool is a lot of those early specials that came out in the 80s which you can find like you know National Geographic stuff the, the, like the stuff narrated by Martin Sheen or whatever um, that, are, that made video releases they have <clears throat> they talk to people who were you know survivors still yeah. so you can talk to people who were like 8 years old at the time and they're like in their 80s or 90s now you know and the woman uh, who I talked about earlier before the Diane who talked to that Mueller she cassette taped all those interviews so you can actually, I don't know if you can find those anywhere, but she cassette taped all the stuff he said about the the, the uh, other events. So a lot of people, I don't know if that's, like a lot of historians at the time kind of blacklisted her when she came out in the mid-90s with that book because they thought it was poppycock. Yeah, but yeah. now I think a lot of them are coming around because a lot of them, she, did, she spent 20 years until her death doing exhaustive research going into all the, the depositions afterward and the two inquests that were done, you know, and stuff like that to find out what really happened and she was been able to find in the nuanced stuff a lot of stuff to to, to actually uh, support support her those, claims that yeah. this guy did because you know they're like oh you know he's not in any manifest he could be making this up and he's like no we were dead since we were deadheading uh our uh, our 
our names were added to a manifest that's in the purse or safe in the in, in down in the thing. So nowadays they're saying, you know, conceivably, if we're able to get, take, we know where Jim Cameron found with his uh, expeditions, he found the purse or safe. So if we're able to raise that, and if the paper is in like a leather bound zippered thing, it could perfectly be preserved and it could substantiate everything that this guy claimed. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's kind of exciting, you know, and it, it, it I find it fascinating as being like a novice uh, 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 you know, of the of the Titanic, like a pseudo historian, yeah, yeah. that there's people who huge Titanic societies that are still every like I said every year, they're doing new things and they're like checking stuff out. You know what I mean? They're 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 new technology coming up. You always up every couple of years you find a special on TV like on the science yeah, special. Yeah. You know what really sank the Titanic? You didn't really evoke, it wasn't an iceberg. It was aliens. You know? <laughs> yeah, who really yeah. knows what sank? Was it really? It the never Titanic? sank. It was the Olympic that sank. You know? Did it really? So and it's it's it, you know and then another thing they say is if if uh, uh, J P Morgan was able to actually. Uh, fight harder and get that whole conglomerate together to have a, a an American-owned company by British, Germany, and French. That he could have maybe had them all talking, and World War One might not have happened. Yeah, you know, had they had to work together in this conglomerate of Cunard, White Star Line, and whatever the other Deutsch or the German and French shipping companies were. So, it's like you said, it was the the worst series of events that could happen. That just all everything played a part in a hand and causing this this thing this disaster to happen you know and then i've heard rumors now which i didn't read yet that that there's reports that that like third class people were being thrown back in the ocean by some ships i don't don't know how much you know uh how you know yeah substantial that is or if there's any credence to that but you know so i don't know but uh yeah i'm a huge clive cussler fan love his books um i would Tell anybody, go venture out. I would dare anybody to leave their house right now. Go to your local Walmart, CVS, pharmacy, airport, train station, and I bet you a dime to... I will come over and make you dinner <laughs> if you can't find a Clive Cussler novel. That's Because he, like I said, he has all these different lines now. And since he's older now, he's doing it with other authors. Like it's him yeah. and another guy. And I think the, you know, the other guy kind of ghost writes it now because he's older and he has his hand in so much stuff. But he's putting like two out a year. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, they're fucking awesome. You know, they're so fun, you know. So, uh, and then lastly, on a, on a complete aside, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was doing the Podwitz podcast that we're kind of connected to, the guy on that, Brian Zeno and I, we did, uh, because we were fascinated by shipwrecks, we did like a two-parter podcast on called Shattered Hulls. And the uh, podcast was about, um, you know, you know about the Titanic and you know about this one but we talked about the lesser known ones that people may not know about like the general slocum in new york which was a a shipping disaster that was the biggest one in new york city history up until 9 11 and uh we did a couple other ones and uh, if you're interested in that we can maybe put a link to that into this cast or maybe we'll reissue that with a link to this cast if you're if you liked what you heard here and you're into like history stuff we we go through a podcast called shattered halls where we talk about all the lesser known ones that are just as tragic but just didn't have the the publicity that the Titanic had, or because of the sands of time, people have forgotten a bit about it. Yeah. You know? Cool. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think out of Sleepover Stars and uh, Buckets of Pistas? Oh, p- p- well, yes. You know, for me, it's this, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with this movie. Yeah. So I don't have the kind of nostalgia that you have for it. So of course. For, for me, you know, it's maybe a two buckets of pizza. 
I mean, it's a perfectly fine movie. I would warn anybody, you know, Deanne keeps saying to him it wasn't wasn't boring. It is slow-paced. Yeah, it's slow. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and like you said, the plot is not that intricate. So, uh, like, finding the Titanic takes a pretty long time. Longer than it seemed than racing the Titanic. <laughs> because once they get there, they realize, oh, because they have to save the guys in the ship. There's an urgency. You know, yeah, like, yeah. There's, 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 so like, I would just warn you that, uh, you know, some people may find it uh, slow. Yeah. Slow by today's standards, I think. Definitely by today's yeah. standards. But if you're in for it, if I think... If it's for it's, a sleepover, I, if you're going to do a couple of movies, I would have this one be early on in yeah. the evening. If you're doing a Titanic <laughs> retrospective... Because you might... My, you might get a little drowsy late if you try to put it on too late. Yeah. And, um, um, I mean, like I said, I, I didn't find it slow at all, but I can certainly see nowadays that it is. it takes its time. I wouldn't say it's it's drawn out or anything, but it it gets it, it takes itself there, you know, to a certain extent. It's it's moving, but it's just taking yeah, its time. Yeah, I mean, the researching, you know? I would have loved to have seen a more I think, that, I wonder if that's a product of Exciting, like, you know, more accurate to the book version of this. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, you know, it is what it, yeah. what it is. I, I mean, mean, I think I, I, there's, I think a lot of people like myself will find a nostalgia in it just for the kind of filmmaking that it is and like the look and the feel of it. It's very, it's familiar, even if you haven't seen it. And they call people who are in the know call this one of, or if not John Barry's best score. Yeah. And that's why they think it's such a tragedy that, that, that the original masters were lost to time. Yeah. You know, because it's such a great, you know, uh, score that now we is lost, which I wonder if they'll be able to just somehow, you know. I don't know. They could just digitally, do it, actually. You know, just do which, it note for note. Yeah. Redo it. Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, John Barry, Yorkshireman, he died a couple of years ago, sadly. I mean, they have the cues in the movie. Yeah. So you know, and I'm sure they have. So they're not. Cl- they might not be able to have them clean, but somebody could reconstruct it based on what you can hear. Yeah, and I'm the sure movie. there's a bunch of. You know, I'm sure in his archive, John Barry's. I'm sure you have the original books. You know, they, oh yeah, well they had the, it to to do the one in '98 or whatever that was. Yeah, well that's what I mean. But the problem is when you're reading it off a page, people's interpretation of things like tempo oh. and stuff become different. But you have, but you point. do have a reference. Yeah. In the actual movie. Yeah. I mean, we t- um, a quick story of something that has nothing to do with this, but is a point that we're talking about is there's, everyone knows that Tennessee Williams played the Glass Menagerie. And um, they'd always heard that they did a TV version of the Glass Menagerie with Shirley Booth from Hazel and Hal Holbrook, and it only aired once. And for years, people have been like, you know, there is a version of that Glass Menagerie. We just want to find it. And what they did was they found, it, of course, since it was a TV movie, it was, uh, you know, long lost, but they found the original masters of every take they did for the TV movies. They must have did multiple takes like you would do with a theatrical movie. And then somebody that watched the movie that night, a cassette recorded it. Yeah. So what they had was they had a cassette record um, version of the of the the airing and they had the original takes so what they did was they painstakingly listened to the cassette recording and listened to each take to realize what take they used and then they constructed it and then i think in early or mid 2016 turner classics yeah it was recent yeah i remember because i I taped it it. yeah i taped the damn thing and people gave shirley uh some shit about her portrayal as that the older lady but 
you know, that's up to your inter. But they, a lot of people single out Hal Holbrook and how awesome his role is as, as the yeah. younger man in it. But it's, it, I'm sure that's around now. You can probably check that out. But that's an example of something you thought was lost to complete to, to time. But then, like in this in this case, yeah. you know, you just take what you have. There's a reference point, and if you have the determination, you can, you know, piece. Well, it back even together. like I don't know, ten years ago, you know, the one of the most most one of the most famous movies that has been lost to time is London After Midnight yeah. with Lon Chaney. And uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, Turner Classic Movies kind of reconstructed it with stills the best they could. They did like know? a whole retrospective of his career with Kenneth Branagh doing this great documentary. And then they released that in subsequential box sets with that documentary on that box set. But I think the coup de grace was that they, maybe that's the reason why, because they, yeah. they were going to... I mean, there's no footage, but they tried to reconstruct the story using stills and whatnot. In the original music, or they had something to go with it. There, to, are, there is a a score that was that was made for it, or I don't know if well, it would, maybe, or there maybe was, they knew what was played at the time of its release. Yeah, but there's also a. Uh, I think I would I would imagine they also used there actually is like a novelization of it. Oh, that you own? The, yeah, like a first Original. printing, like nineteen thirty something. Yeah, from, you know that has some photos. I'm sure those photos were used. So you can you can follow you can read the story of yeah. what it is. So they're trying to did their best with what they had available to reconstruct it. And that's slow stills. because it's just stills. It's it's hard to keep it on to, to you know because yeah, it's yeah. thematically how you're going to get like the surprises of like him as the phantom turning around or <laughs> you know. And then most notably yeah, yeah. too is in the mid '90s the problem or the thing they did with Touch of Evil with uh, Orson Welles. Oh yeah, you know, tried they, to reconstruct his version his version of it, of it with the, with like a forty page essay he wrote after he saw the the studio's final cut of it. So for years you had the final cut, or even you know it's, the list goes on and on. A couple years ago there was a great documentary about Bruce Lee. Yeah, where they took the end, whole end sequence of Game of Death because he died making Game of Death, but he had shot basically the whole third act, which is the actual. Like the climax, I'm going through the temple, through the temple, through each floor, fighting a different style of martial arts till you get to the very begin- top, which is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar. But the way it is in the movie Game of Death, they just kind of, you know, did their version of it. But they went through all of Bruce Lee's notes uh, and all the notes that he took and the script that he was working off of and how he shot it, and they reconstructed that last that tournament of fighting. Like to the best that they could. Of, I don't think I've seen that. It's like the whole last part of the documentary is is just like fifteen twenty minutes of of the game of death. I've seen that. Maybe that is the one I saw. I saw them. I saw the edit they had of what they they took everything that survived and they cut. Yeah, it. and they they have some like they use a couple of like reenactment type stuff just to tell you fill you in of like what the plot was, so that when you get to that that section, but then it's just. They re-edited it the way they think Bruce Lee had planned on it originally. That's a fascinating being. movie. Uh, and that's a whole fascinating story. How many movies did he end up doing? I forgot now. It's it's only like four yeah, and then Game of Death. Because I mean, he only did... Uh, Chinese Connection. And Chinese Connection. Enter the Dragon. Uh, the problem is there's also titles have changed. You know, what used to be Fist of Fury is now called like something else. You know, used to, Fist of Fury was... It's, it gets confusing with the titles. Like we grew up with it being Chinese Connection, which isn't the title. I don't think it goes by now. Fist of Fury, which is what I think Chinese Connection is now. Is yeah. but for us, it was a different movie. The Return of the way, Dragon. Uh, way, Return of the Dragon, which I think is actually Way of the Dragon. That's the one where he fights Chuck Norris in, in, the, in the Coliseum. Yeah. 
uh, and then Enter the Dragon. Yeah. And then I think Game of Death, which he yeah. died before he really even got into. And then he's got all his stuff he did with like Green Hornet and stuff and the Batman crossover. Yeah, and there's some yeah. there's the Green Hornet stuff and there's some television appearances. Yeah. Um, but in terms of feature-length movies, they no. didn't really get to make that many, unfortunately. Yeah. There's the, what, the Iron Flute or whatever that he had originally had been developing with uh, James Colburn. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. that ended up getting making being made with David Carradine much later. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And all the friends he had. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that it's just it's fascinating to find. So maybe one day, someone will take the time, or if maybe we get enough money, we can. <laughs> we can uh, commission we can commission to get a John note Barry's, for note yeah, tempo of, of this, you know, in some in complete vinyl box set that in the black hole, all the whole, you know, because they're so close to me, the, the sounding wise. Um. For me, for like a sleepover movie, since I saw it as a sleepover, it's like a three or four. And then for me as a movie, it's like about a three because I now, think Did you a, see it as a sleep at, at a sleepover? Well, did you just watch it when it was on TV I when was, you were yeah, late? Yeah, I was watching it late at night, you know. <laughs> so to me, that's, you know. I mean, like, see, that's the thing is like, you're like, oh, I, these are sleepover movies. Like, I don't see like Martin and Chris coming over and watching some of the well, stuff. Well, you know, because I haven't seen the damn things probably since. Uh, <laughs> like watching it on TV with your dad isn't exactly, it's not really a sleepover. So you that's, wouldn't turn watching something like if you go out with your dad and you, you know, you you watch it like sleep late night sleeping over i mean you, so, oh i guess we have to have some physically sleep over for it to be the sleep well, over. I just, you know i think there's certain movies that yeah. are you know they, they they're what most people would consider i don't think just because you rented a movie with like your parents does it automatically make it a sleepover? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> but that's my, you know, but that's my outlook on it. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's why they. I only it. brought it up because you're like, I watched it as a sleepover. I was like, but did you really watch it as a sleepover? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you're six years old, seven, six, you know, six years old watching on TV. I don't know. I mean, I knew it enough to. We must have taped it because I knew it enough to know, you know, quite a bit of it that night to remember. Yeah. You know, that's another great movie. If people haven't seen the Sir Walter Lord um, version of Night to Remember, really good. That's more of a documentary kind of style of it. So, uh, well, we hope you liked it. We hope you like what we've been doing. Uh, we're going to be out in a couple of weeks with with uh, another uh, oldie book goodie. An uh, exciting, further exciting adventure. Oh, <laughs> Saturday Please check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, check us out. We have a proper site. Um, we have uh, a big community on Facebook, and you know we, we get a lot. Of, we give you a lot of updates there and stuff. Uh, the podcast is all on every you know kind yeah. of. Um, well, you're listening to it somehow. Yeah. So if but somebody, if you want to listen to it somewhat different way, that exists too. Yeah, iTunes, yeah. Stitcher. Yeah, you can most, stream most it. of those uh, podcast distributors. Yeah, and then we have including uh, on our regular site, and then we have. Uh, updates and stuff and tell a friend you know if people you know if you're into this and you like it go tell somebody else maybe they might like it too uh you know we're trying to keep sleepover movies alive all the sleepover stuff alive doing our best and we've been you know we've been doing the uh kind of the uh, saturday night movie sleepovers present stuff and we're gonna try to continue doing that as much as we can yeah uh, those are fun little one-offs to give you some other product that isn't just us doing sleepover movies and stuff or or movies you know, uh, our regular fare of what we usually do. We, we've been putting out some bonus episodes of, you know, interviews or, you know, having people sleep over with us, guest overs, <laughs> movie lovers. Guest you know overs, I mean? movie lovers, all yeah. kinds of overs. We have all, all kinds of stuff. So um, check all that out. Check out the site. Check, you know, I'm sure if you're new to us, 
There's probably, uh, we, we, we'll bet you, uh, we'll come over and make you dinner if we're wrong, but I'm sure if you look at our catalog, there's probably a couple movies. Kind of be at least one movie you want yeah, to listen they, to they, us. Like, oh, that's actually really interesting. I'd love, love to hear what they've got to say and about Make that. sure you um, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yes, because as Ice Cube tells you, taking dicks up your ass <laughs> may be bad for your health. But that's Ice Cube saying it, not me. That no, I, yeah. we're all for it. Yeah, we're not, yeah, whatever you want to do with your own time. We don't make any claims. Yeah, we don't make any judgments here. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a non-judgmental <laughs> podcast, except what might be a sleepover movie. <laughs> You know, it's very. We're very just, into you ourselves. Know, you said I was just. I was questioning. Was did you the really run, watch the, it at a sleepover? The, run, the validity of your claim is, is up in question. Uh, but that's the thing. It's a very personal. We've talked about before, or or, or movies in general. They're very. You know, one oh, movie yeah. could be someone else's. You know. Oh, that, I mean, yeah. you know, look, it's about nostalgia. Yeah, you, you know, know, that's base. That's at the end of the day, that's what this is about. This yeah. is a movie that you have a lot of nostalgia. The for. whole. Truckload of nostalgia for oh, so much so that I that I became a you know a, a aficionado on a, the old RMS Titanic. So on that note, take care. See you soon, and we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Later.